You're listening to episode 84 of the Comics Pals. We're a group of comic book journalists and friends who record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives. Boys, I'm happy to let everyone know that we've sold out. With podcasts being a hot toy mover at the moment, with toys of the likeness of uh, WTF with Mark Marin and Serial, I've sold our likeness and rights to Hot Topic. Okay, I can fuck with that. Whoa. We're going to have the Comics Pals action figures. <laughs> Wait, is that really true? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh. <laughs> Because I would, I would actually buy that. I would 1,000% buy an, an Adnan toy. <laughs> there was one caveat, however. They did not want any figures for any Video Games Pals exclusive pals. Ooh. Oh. Well, that's set two, right? They do the reprints of me and Sean, and then they, they get those other losers to, you know, have their less popular figures. That's right. They're the less popular. They're wave two less popular. <laughs> yeah. I've seen the, the Thompson's hair removal. It's kind of like the old Batman cape. <laughs> so who who was the chase figure of us? The the chase figure was the the, the misprint of Sean being white. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> well, and they also introduced uh, they introduced a lot of retail exclusives where you can get the exact same figure of me, but my hair is just a different color. Seems like a cheap ploy, but I mean, hey, residuals are residuals. You guys remember those toys where, like, you could take the head off and put another head on? Yeah. You could just do that with Pete. It's just colors. <laughs> I like that idea. Now, we have a bunch of different lines of stuff coming in here. We have Comics Pals action figures. We have Comics Pals fire extinguishers. Even Comics Pals sex ed CDs. But the one downside is apparently in our contracts, Marco gets 90% of the proceeds of all merchandising. I don't remember agreeing to that. I do. Of course you do. You negotiated the deal, you monster! <laughs> so, if you would like to see Toys of Us, uh, let us know how many you'd like to order and what color you want Pete's hair to be. If you want to uh, talk to us about how cool it would be if there were Toys of Us, uh, you can do so by reaching out to us on Apple Podcasts, where we are a five-star rated podcast. Of course we are. Uh, you can leave us a rating of your choice there. And uh, we're on all other podcast hosting platforms, pretty much. And if we're not, let us know so we can be. Uh, you can get us on social media at the Comics Pals. You can write to us at thecomicspals at gmail.com. Uh, and last but not least, we're on YouTube, where we've got big things going on. We've got our Wizard World Philadelphia coverage, several interviews, um, all up and ready for your viewing displeasure. Uh, <laughs> we've got interviews with uh, Victor Dandridge. We've got interviews with Bob Sally. Uh, we've got tons of stuff going on. Uh, so be sure to go check that out. And the big, big hit uh, is Fill Me In, uh, a series of videos where Phil is uh, investigating a conspiracy that involves cosplayers at Wizard World 2018. So if you'd like to find out how the conspiracy resolves itself and whether Phil can take the pressure, head over to YouTube and watch that. While you're there, be sure to like the video, share with your friends, drop us a comment, and subscribe. It's free to do, and it helps us out a lot more than it costs you. So, with all that jazz out of the way, I think I have a question for you guys. Oh, so does that mean it's time for the Shut up! Shut up! No, shut up! No, 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 no
we're, we're, we are not doing a random question of the week. This week, we have a different question. Would you rather? What? I don't have a jingle for that. Would you like to yell, would you rather? Would you rather? Nope, it's bad. I don't like it. I don't like it, Phil. I don't appreciate it. You know, you could have given me a heads up. I could have produced a beat. What, what if? Wait, wait. Would you, and then collectively, rather... Oh, God. Oh, if we could do harmonies, that would be good. Be like, yeah, rather... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Why don't we just also harmonize us saying what we are in the intro? I'm Sean, and we're the Comics Pals. Why don't I would we love that? that. Yeah, would you really love that? Kale, Kale, why wouldn't you like that? Kale, why <laughs> wouldn't you like that? Yeah, is that a problem for you? It's almost like you have a real vendetta against that. I don't know where the fuck this came from. (laughs) Real mad about it. (laughs) Fair enough. Phil, take it away, man. All right. The way would you rather works is that I will ask our pals a would you rather scenario. And they will have to ask me clarifying questions about each scenario until I close the floor for questions. At which point, each pal will then answer which would-you-rather scenario they would choose. And I will choose a winner with very meticulously calculated points. What's the time limit? I'll give you guys 60 seconds for the questions. So, would-you-rather... Be the best friend of a superhero, but be the subject of ire of his or her enemies. Or be the useless superhero of a superhero team a la Hawkeye. And I'm starting the clock. Ask me your questions. First of all, uh, what's my, what are my powers? Let's see. You, you're, very, you're a master class baker. That sounds uh, pretty useful, I gotta say. In what way is that useless? You're not going to be able to uh, negatively afflict your enemies. What if I point? The media makes fun of you, basically. They say you're the, the one that's fattening up the team, all that stuff. <laughs> so so uh, w- why why would villains know that I am the friend of a sud- said superhero or of a superhero? That's a good question. You're in the tabloids a lot. And the reality is, you know, in newspapers, we see you in pictures with that superhero all the time. Not like not unlike Rick Jones. This superhero that we're best friends with, someone who can come to our immediate aid. Only if they're in the city. If they're in space or something, you know. You're in trouble. What what kind of superhero are we, like, the best friend sidekick of? Like, is it somebody that could teach us how to fight? Do they have some tech that we could use? Or are we just, like, we're just sitting ducks until Captain America teaches us karate? They have a, a calling brace, like a, a bracer, not like Jimmy, uh, kind of like Jimmy Olsen. So if you are in trouble, you can call them. And they can get there as quickly as they can. But you don't really have a self-defense mechanism. Are there any perks to being, like, what, what am I getting out of being the superhero's best friend? Oh, well, you're famous. Do I get access to all, like, the uh, superhero parties? Most of them. Sometimes you embarrass that superhero because you're embarrassing. All right, guys, I'm closing the floor for questions. Give me your answer to this would-you-rather scenario. I'll be the master baker. You're going to be the baker. Yeah, dog. I I was just going to say, like, I got to say, I I feel like I agree with Kale, where it's like, if the only benefit of being a superhero's best friend is that I'm famous, I'm already going to be famous as the shitty baking superhero. So I'll just quit whatever team I'm on and get a fucking cooking show on the Food Network and be the next (laughs) fucking Guy Fieri. All right, Marco. Nah, I'm going to go with uh, be the friend of the superhero. Access to those kind of things is better, I think. Yeah, that way you don't actually have to do anything except be a, like, you're just there. You're just there and you have access to that stuff and can, you know. Yeah, right. That's an interesting point. 
Sean? I'm going to be the most worthless member of a team because (laughs) at the end of the day, the question to me is, do I want to be on a superhero team? And the answer is yes. And I feel like, hey, I could parlay that into a book deal. The life and times (laughs) of Sean Bartley, the master chef. Like, there's so many things that I could do with that power that I would have that there's no way I'm not going to take that opportunity. All right. Let me do the math here and uh, calculate and tabloid all the points here. Carry to one. As it turns out, the winner of this round of Would You Rather with a score of 15,000 points is Marco. (gasps) Whoa, 15,000? Is this like right. is this like whose line? No, no, no. The points do matter here. Yep, hard science. <laughs> I gotta tell you, um, uh, I I'd be cool if we uh, if we never did this again because <laughs> I uh, I don't like the idea that Marco won. Uh, <laughs> I feel like this is BS, and um, I'm not cool with this. So we're gonna move on. And you know Marco, what? Sh- you you know what, take- Sean? I'm gonna call. I'm gonna call my friend an actual superhero to. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> You can take your paper victory <laughs> and shove it up your superhero friend's butt. How about that? And this is and this has been Would You Rather. <laughs> All right. So uh, now we're going to jump into our pals polls for the week. Uh, so we'll start with Marco, who chose Archie 31. Yeah, uh, it was a light week this, light week this week. We sh- um and archie has sort of kind of been pretty slow uh ever since the last arc uh where everything's sort of built up and um the larger story sort of just came to came to an end pretty abruptly and so i've uh been i've had mixed feelings on archie with this most recent arc i think it started like the like two issues ago um but with this book, with this newest issue, I want to see where it goes to see if they they pick it up again or to see if maybe there's like a new direction. I feel like maybe Mark Wade might be slowly leaving the book because uh, the writing credit, there's two writers now. And uh, I think he's starting to, the other writers starting to take over more pages. So uh, I'm assuming it's just the transitionary period. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm still on board with it. And check it out. It's a really good book, especially the first, the, the first arc, few arcs. They're really, really good. Do you know who the other writer is? Uh, it's Flynn. Yeah, it's Ian Flynn. Um, there it is. So that's cool. Uh, I've never read an Archie book, but I've also never, I don't know, Archie's never appealed to me. What's it about? Uh, it's Slice of Life It's uh, and comedy. Pretty lighthearted. The art is usually what, it's what pulled me in because Fiona Staples was on it from Saga. Um, but then Mark's writing has been pretty just like carefree and just fun. Um, so overall it's just his misadventures and his relationship between Betty, Veronica, and a bunch of the other, like his friends and stuff. That's pretty cool. Would you say that, uh, that would appeal to somebody who liked, uh, Snot Girl, for instance? Yes. For different reasons though. Well, we've got a book club on Snot Girl, so you guys can head over and, uh, give that a listen and then go buy Archie because you're going to want more slice of life stuff and, uh, it's there for you. Drama! Yeah, I mean... Also, if you like Archie, you might as well listen to the Riverdale Review, too. That's a show. Good job, it's guys. also a show. Good job, guys. Proud of you. Proud of you. Uh, so from Kale, we've got Go Go Power Rangers number 10. Is the continuing uh, drama from the um, the Ranger Slayer, who has shown up mm-hmm. to uh, try to defeat the Rangers um, as they fight Lord Draken. And um, there's a new Zord on the cover. And that's 
a hundred percent what I'm the most excited about. I think it's um I think it's the Rager Slayer. Uh, I think it's her Zord, and it's a Mega Zord. It's not just like Kimberly's Pterodactyl. It's the whole Zord. That's like a whole Mega Zord. How, how would you describe what it looks like? I, I mean, I know you said it's a Mega Zord, but like, what's its deal? Okay, all right. Work with me here. So it it looks okay. You remember Power Rangers Ninja Storm? Uh, kind of. It has a form that's really like uh, stealthy and quick, and and like you know, it's not bulky like most Zords are, but it's kind of thin. Um, it's like that mixed with the the Power Rangers uh, sort of ninja era swords, like the Mighty Morphin ninjas. Um, mm-hmm. Had you know, I remember the Zord had the great big green. Oh yeah, okay. That it kind of a mix of those. Very uh, kind of thin and um, quick and probably stealthy, I would bet. Like in a more agile, sleek figure. I learned a lot. Also also from Kale, we've got Immortal Hulk number one. Yeah, we talked about this when it was announced. Uh, I'm really excited about uh, the prospect of a, uh, a horror Hulk. I, um, that's kind of an avenue that hasn't totally been explored with that character. Um, and it's uh, it's on the list of um, a bunch of number ones from uh, Marvel that are coming out this week, um, including uh, Dazzler from uh, Magdalene Bisagio and uh, Lauren Braga. Uh, mm. Laura Braga, I apologize. And uh, very excited about those two books from Marvel because I love Dazzler. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so from Pete, we've got Walking Dead 180. Yeah, uh, so... Walking Dead, um, I, I think I said this last month when I dropped this one in my pals polls, um, it's been in a really interesting spot lately. Uh, Walking Dead is definitely a book that ebbs and flows. And, um, you know, after kind of the wrapping of the last major storyline, uh, there was kind of a quiet period and now we're kind of back in a building period. Um, and it's moving in some interesting directions. I've really fallen out of the show, uh, this last season. So it's been fun to be able to get my walking dead fix and have it be something that's still compelling to me. Um, so yeah, if you're a fan of walking dead, if you have fallen off of the show or you're looking for a time to jump on, um, there's 180 issues to catch up on, but it's worth it. What else is there to say? What else can, what else can you say? You know, Mm -hmm. uh, from Phil, we've got dark Knights metal deluxe hardcover. Yeah, uh, Kale and I were remarking before we started recording that uh, it's crazy that they're already dropping the hardcover to that uh, so soon because DC's, uh, I mean, at least in my experience, been very slow at publishing their collected editions of books. Um, If you are interested in what we thought of Dark Knight's Metal, uh, Sean and I have covered just about every issue of the series on this very podcast, but... Uh, if you want the Spark Notes edition, uh, I liked it. It was good. So pick it up. It's worth reading, really. It is. It's just a little messy. Do you that's, think it'll come in a, a metal hardcover? That's uh, That'd be cool as hell. It would sit like a brick on my giant bookshelf. So uh, I chose Man of Steel number two. Uh, we're going to talk about it a little later in the show. But uh, Man of Steel number one dropped this week. And uh, I really liked it. So I can't wait to see what happens next. Um, I, I, I'm so curious about what Bendis is going to do with Superman going forward. And uh, 
the first issue definitely piqued my interest even further. So we'll talk about that more a little bit later, but uh, I'm definitely looking forward to that. And then Kale and I both chose Justice League number one. Kale, you can talk about that. Uh, so particularly the the reason I'm excited about this or and looking forward to it is for Jim Chung's art. Uh, pretty truly, he's not the kind of artist who will um, stay on a book for very long. Yeah. Um, did you happen to read No Justice? Uh, not the whole thing. I read the uh, the free comic book day. Uh, no, the zero issue. Yeah, the zero issue. So I, uh, I, I really disliked No Justice. I really don't think it was a particularly good lead-in to the uh, Justice League run by Snyder. But that being said, that also had two other writers on it. It was Snyder, Tinian, and Williams. So I want, I'm, I'm excited to see what Snyder does when it's just him and with phenomenal art by Jim Chung. So I, I, I definitely am hopeful, and I can't wait to see what they do with it. So we're going to jump into the news with a piece of news that has been rumored for a while but is still really surprising. Jamie Foxx is confirmed to play Spawn in the upcoming reboot. Uh, so this is a movie that's coming from Bloomhouse and Todd McFarlane. Todd is directing the film uh and fox has been courted for a long time to play this character uh what's interesting about it to me at least is that jamie fox hasn't really been doing a ton lately or at least i haven't noticed him in much and i believe this is the first time he's doing a superhero movie well no he was electro in uh spider man amazing spider-man 2 right right i was gonna make that joke like I was gonna make it into a joke, but it's now just a fact. <laughs> so, what do, you, what do you guys make of this? I'm really into this. Um, I think Jamie Foxx is a really talented actor. Um, you know, I, obviously, Amazing Spider-Man Two was not great, uh, but I mean, he's been in plenty of other. Not because of him, right? Exactly. Um, and he's been he's been great in uh, almost everything I've ever seen him act in. Um, so I think like the idea of him. Um, you know, playing a leading role in in what sounds like a really experimental superhero movie, uh, I'm into. You know, we've heard McFarlane talk a lot about how it has more of a horror vibe. I've heard him compare it to Alien, but you're, like, rooting for the Xenomorph. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it seems like this is going to be a really fun, different kind of movie, and uh, I'm excited to see what Jamie Foxx does with the character. Yeah, the, the last movie he did was Baby Driver, where he was... Uh uh, kind of a secondary antagonist. But before that, I think the last movie I can think of that he did was Annie, like a few years ago. Oh, oh yeah. Sure. And then it would have been Spider-Man. Yeah, you're right. So I think Sean's right in the sense that he's been really kind of out of the picture lately. I don't know. Uh, Jimmy Fox is hit or miss for me as an actor. I think, he can, I think he can be really good. I think of Ray, which is a great movie. Ray yeah. was fucking great. Yeah. But he's done not-so-memorable performances, so I'm curious what will happen here. I'm not a huge Spawn guy. Um, I guess I was a little before my time when it was uh, really trendy. Um, but I'm interested, and like anything else, folks, it could be good. Have you guys seen uh, the, the first movie? Yes. No, I haven't. Yeah, I have. I'm a big fan of that movie. It's been a while for me. Uh it's got a. I, just, I was just looking at the, the actor from the original one, which is uh, Michael Jai White, uh, but it's got a, a 37 meta critic score. Oh. <laughs> I I don't remember it being it being that bad, but I 
Like, I think I saw it on HBO when I was like 10. So I don't. It's like, it's a cult movie. Like, I'm with Sean where I have a lot of love for that movie, but it's not, uh, it's, it's a shoddy superhero movie that was made in the 90s, you know? Um, there's a lot of great things about it, the cast being one of them, but. I mean, I mean John Leguizamo absolutely killed it. Fucking he put, perfect. He put his all into that, and he definitely was one of the first, one of the earlier uh, villains in a superhero movie that I thought was really excellent. What the uh, hell is the name of that guy? The clown. The clown. It's just the clown. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's he's terrifying. <laughs> I think I think you're thinking of the Joker. The jokester, you mean? <laughs> the, the jokester. jokester. So I, I did want to read a little from uh, from McFarlane on on this. Uh, so he he said regarding this movie, the scariest movies from John to jo- Jaws to John Carpenter's The Thing or The Grudge and The Ring, the boogeyman doesn't talk. It confuses people because of the comic book industry and because they all default into their Captain America mindset. And I keep saying no, get into John Carpenter's mindset or Hitchcock. This is not a man in a rubber suit. It's not a hero that's going to come and save the damsel. It's none of that. At the end of the movie, I'm hoping that audiences will say either, is this a ghost that turns into a man or is it a man that turns into a ghost? So he 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 definitely has an interesting idea here, I think. The problem for me is that Jamie Foxx, like you guys said, is an actor that has lots of range. So why would you cast him in a movie where you're not going to have him talk? I don't know, man. I feel like um I feel like with stuff like this, like I see your point, but it kind of reminds me a lot of um uh what's his name? Um Tom Hardy in uh in Mad Max, right? Where it's like he he's definitely like has barely any speaking roles in that film, but he's a great actor and he does a lot just by being present on the screen and being able to act without saying anything, and I think for a role like this, you want somebody with the same level of talent as Jamie Foxx. Um, and yeah, like, I, th- I think you can make a case that maybe you're underutilizing him by, like, not having him in a bigger role, but there's not a bigger role for him. So, like, I think putting a character like this that I think is going to rely a lot on just physical acting in the hands of somebody that I really feel like is good at that. Like we said, Ray, something he, he did a lot of uh, character work on to really get in Ray Charles's, um, you know, like to, to move like a blind man would. Right. And I think, I think he could do some really good work here. So, uh, really quick in Mad Max is Tom Hardy, the main character kind. Nah, no, like he's Mad Max and Mad Max is the titular character, but like Furiosa, who's uh, Charlize Theron's character, is really like the main character. Interesting, because that's the other wrinkle to this story is that Spawn is not the main character in this movie. It's it's really, um, I believe it's Sam and Twitch yeah. who are the main, the main characters in this movie. So it's really going to be interesting to see how this shakes out because we've never really seen anything like this before for a superhero film. See that's that, that's where you're wrong because the one thing he the one thing he says is by the end of the movie I want audiences to say is this a man that turns into a ghost or a ghost that turns into a man and it's like he's never seen Ghost Rider one or two starring Nicolas Cage where audiences were left asking that very question. Back to you, Sean. The only questions that I was asking myself after I saw Ghost Rider one was why the hell did I waste my money and time. On this piece of garbage. 
So, a- any more thoughts on on this uh, on this news? I'm into it. Like, I I like Jamie Foxx. I'm not a huge Spawn fan, but um, when I was you know an edgy 16 year old getting back into comics, I read some Spawn in my day. I liked the movie. I liked the HBO cartoon when it was the 90s. Yes. Like those like. Spawn's a cool character when he's used properly, and I think the idea of him being less of a edgelordy hellscape superhero and more of like a monster movie monster who just happens to murder criminals is like, I feel like that seems like a really good direction for the character and one that I feel like I could actually get behind. Um, and I don't know that I want to read an ongoing Spawn book, but like something like this where it's just a bite size of that world and that flavor, I feel like it could really work. Right. And then like the company itself, Bloomhouse, is known for those things. Mm-hmm. So like, of course, you know, like, like that's, I think, exactly to your point, Pete, is what we're going to get. It, it's And I think it's what they want to produce, knowing the history that Bloomhouse has. And that also inspires a ton of confidence in me is like Bloomhouse is fucking on fire right now, dude. You know, it's like yeah. obviously Get Out is the one that everybody knows, but they've had a lot of other modest success like this with good tight horror movies with small budgets and good creators and granted we don't know what todd mcfarland's directorial skills are and everything like we could find ourselves with a frank miller situation there but i'm the jury's out on this one but i'm i'm interested i i don't know i think uh you know not to say anything about mcfarland's directorial talent or anything but the fact that it's coming directly from him uh you know it does inspire confidence for me just because we're getting a pure vision right you know yep. with, Frank, with Frank yep. Miller and the spirit it was the spirit through someone else's eyes and at the time it was a you know sort of gritty noir I wouldn't even call it pulp through someone else's brown eye kale. <laughs> huh. whoa wow oh. I, I dislike that film wow so uh we'll, we'll move along uh I think when we get a trailer it'll be a lot easier to mm-hmm yeah. Come to some conclusions or at least have more to say. Uh, but I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting that trailer. So, uh, in Walking Dead news, uh, Pete mentioned that he had, he was a lapsed viewer of the show. Uh, Andrew Lincoln is exiting The Walking Dead in season nine. Now, I, I know that you guys don't really care much about the show, uh, too much other than Pete and myself, but this is pretty, groundbreaking and interesting and so just give me a little bit of time and i'll break this down for you guys uh so he's said multiple times that he really wants to kind of come to an end with this series just because how long can you continue on and, and doing this um and so he's finally kind of just leaving it because they won't end it. This is from this is from his words right now. There's part of me that really wants to complete something. How long that takes, I don't know, but certainly I really think the fans and my character deserves an endpoint at some time in the future. So he just comes across as being kind of over the show. Uh, also, um, uh, Lauren Cohen is is exiting the show as well, and we don't know what's going to happen with um, Michonne because her contract is coming up as well. Now, the reason why I find this to be so compelling is because I can't think of a show right now off the top of my head that's ever lost this many principal characters and continued in, in a good way. The Walking Dead strikes me as being unique in the sense that this is a world where you're supposed to believe anyone can die. So what does the show look like and who rises 
when you lose these characters. I find that to be very compelling. So I'm actually excited for this. Wasn't uh, weren't they planning for the show to end soon anyway? I don't know. I haven't personally heard that. So to my knowledge, I don't believe the that they have plans to necessarily end the show sometime soon. But I think a lot of people are like talking about it that way because they're like, oh, the ratings are down and all that kind of stuff. But it's like the ratings are down from it being the number one show on television. It's still one of the top five. It's still incredibly profitable. And you have to imagine that if they do lose all these people, the cost of producing the show is going to plummet. Uh, because Andy Lincoln, Lauren Cohen, and Denai uh, are the three, aside from Norman Reedus, right, have to be the three top-earning people on the show. Um, they're the main characters, and uh, especially Denai's star is on the rise after Black Panther. So, you know, I think, um, yeah, it's interesting, Sean, because to your point, it is, like, hard to imagine this show without any of those characters, as main characters, but it is The Walking Dead. But I think the thing that really fucks with me is I think if they all died and Carl was still around, I would be like, okay, well, whatever. Like, there's our leading man now. But, like, what, are we going to make Daryl the main character or something? You know, like... So, actually, uh, this is coming from The Hollywood Reporter. Norman Reedus is in negotiations for a $20 million-plus deal to become the main character for the show and and continue on. So, yeah, it looks like exactly that. <laughs> that. That To me, that's the only thing that makes sense. Um, but even so, it's strange. It's strange. It's it's hard to imagine The Walking Dead without a Grimes at the front, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess the thing that's nice about it is that's a way forced divergent point, right? Like, they're not going to be able to just keep um, following what the comics are doing without Rick, you know? Um, uh, Kirkman, right? Um, he does he does work on the show, right? Mm-hmm. He's an executive producer. He writes several episodes a season, usually, or at least co-writes. So he would he would probably have a, a hand in uh, guiding Nor- Norman Reedus's character. Uh, what's his name? Um, Daryl. Daryl. In 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 guiding him and and sort of crafting that narrative, right? Yeah, like one hundred percent. He's like, he's still, you know, he's been the one consistent creative voice on the show the entire time. Cause like they've changed showrunners and stuff like that a few times, but yeah, he's been, he's been there the whole time. They're, they're probably not going to try to bring the show to a halt until it, uh, the ratings really decline because as it is for AMC, I, this is a huge money maker for them. And that's just what it comes down to. Well, yeah. And, and again, like uh, the, all the doom and gloom around it is really like, it's hyperbolic, you know, it's like when, when you're talking about going from being a show that regularly beat out football, um, to dipping, it's like, okay, well, so what it's, it's still making a shit ton of money. Um, so they're going to keep it going. And there's honestly a chance that this breathes new life into the show, because if you are a fan of the books or whatever, you might be like, well, okay, I'll give it a shot at something totally different now. And you probably don't even have to have been paying attention to what was happening, you know, like, because it's going to have to go in a new direction. So, I don't know. This might actually end up being a good thing. A lot of people like Daryl. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of people like Daryl a lot more than Rick. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, he's a breakout character for sure. This This show, to me, in some ways, I feel like it's sort of run its course in the sense that Eight seasons is, is a lot, right? Most shows don't even get half that. So for it to have gone this long, 
uh, now again is when you start to see these actors kind of kind of say, "Hey, uh, when wh- where's the out here?" Um, and it, it very much has felt for me like the wheels have kind of been falling off in terms of them. You know, they've had so many different showrunners and different people come in and out behind the scenes. The controversy surrounding the death of Carl and how that was handled. There's just a lot of things that seem to be going wrong, and I really hope that you're right, Pete, and that this does bring new life into the show, and hopefully it can set them on a path that's going to make it something that's very watchable for the next, whatever, how many, however many seasons they want to go with this thing. Or the alternative is, like, maybe this is just it. Like, maybe this is the thing that finally kills it, and, like, that's okay. Like, you know, like, I, I still love The Walking Dead comics. Like, I'm, I'm a fan of The Walking Dead, but I agree with you, Sean. Like, I, I felt like... The reason I haven't been watching this season is because at the end of the last one with the, the you know, tease of the death of Carl and everything, I was just kind of like, I don't, that to me is a really bad note for the show. And I understand they had to let him go because he didn't want to do the show anymore. But like a huge part of the narrative of The Walking Dead is Rick being able to overcome anything for the chance of his son having a future. So having him die, granted, Judith is still around, but it's like, I don't know, like he he was the character that was like supposed to be focused on hope and all that stuff. And I understand why it can be compelling to lose him. But at the same time, it's just like, so like, what's even the point anymore? You know, like it's just it just feels like suffering to get to the next stability until we start suffering again. And I think a lot of people feel that way about The Walking Dead. I never have. Um, I feel like in the show, I've gotten to that point, though. Um and that's a thing that I don't think that the comic has experienced in 15 years and 180 issues. Either hopefully this pushes it in a new direction that is refreshing and reinvigorates the fan base that cares, or it is a, a, the final thing that pushes us out the door of like, we can't lose all of these main characters and still have people be invested. And if that's the case, maybe it's just time. Yeah, fair enough. So uh, let's talk about Netflix's The Magic Order. So The Magic Order is uh, the first project coming from Mark Millar and his team up with Netflix. Uh, Netflix bought Millar World uh, last year. And uh, this is the first project that they're coming out with under that that banner. So it's uh, Mark Millar with uh, Olivier Coipel, I believe is how you say his name. Uh, And uh, so we watched the trailer. What would you guys think about this? It looks really cool. It's, uh, yeah. Um, it's magic. <laughs> Hot take. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I really liked it. I want to preface this by saying that Mark Millar has been so hit or miss for me the last few years that I I see his name and it doesn't necessarily inspire. Uh, I really disliked the new Kick Ass. I read one issue and was done. I have no desire to read any Hit Girl anything ever again. And so I'm. Ready for Mark Millar to do something that's very different from what he's been doing before. And I would say that outside of the kick-ass stuff, he has diversified mm-hmm, over the mm-hmm. last few years. So to me, this is a, a huge step in a right direction, uh, telling a story that's, again, very unique. And it's a team-up with Netflix. Like, how cool is that, you know? What's this book going to look like with real money behind it? Uh, they made a trailer for it, you know, that's coming from Netflix. I think there's a lot to be excited about uh, in terms of the potential of how this could impact the industry. Uh, well, let me let me let me see if this sells it to you, Sean. 
this this news uh, sort of broke on the verge, and um, I'm just going to read just a, a little part of the a little part of that article just to just to see if I can sell it to you. Sure. So uh, Miller says in an interview with Comic Book Resources, "quote totally totally it's actually closer to The Sopranos in that it's about a patriarch in an underworld family and his concerns about his children. King Lear is the basic structure." If that doesn't sound too pompous, but with magic bombs. <laughs> Personal note here, guys. It opens with a shagging scene. So you know this isn't Hogwarts. Yeah, uh, so totally ignoring what Kale said. Um, I, I, I definitely uh, would say I agree with Sean. I think Mark Millar is a very hit or miss writer. And um, to not totally ignore what Kale said. Yeah, he's a bit of an edgelord sometimes. And um, I loved the first Kick-Ass back in like 2008. I don't need that 10 years later. Um, and it's it's not super appealing to me. I don't think as like a 25-year-old is in the same way it was when I was 16. And uh, I, I think that is kind of my overall thoughts on Millar's work in recent years is a lot of it just seems like he's kind of chasing an aesthetic that I don't really feel like works for me anymore. And I don't even feel like is really in the cultural zeitgeist the way that it used to be. Um, but the, I like the elevator pitch for this is actually pretty appealing to me. Um, you know, sex jokes, notwithstanding, like the idea of, uh, what looks to be kind of like an old West setting with magic and, and crime and, you know, family and, and that kind of stuff. Um, definitely that, that speaks to me. Uh, and I think the old West setting, d- didn't it look like it was kind of like an old school, like Victorian or like, you know, 1800s kind of vibe. No, I didn't get that impression. Okay. That was, that was like what I got from the aesthetic. So maybe it was just because it's fancy and magic and stuff looks ornate or whatever. But, um, that, I, that was my impression, but, um, either way, that is an interesting premise and it's not something I've ever really heard before. And I, I do feel like magic is a kind of underexplored concept in comics. Um, you know, aside from like the few magical superheroes that we see existing in the big two, like there aren't a lot of books that I've read personally anyway that deal with magic, at least not in this kind of way. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm interested in it. I don't I don't know that it's going to speak to me because uh, similar to Sean, like I the the most recent Malar stuff I've read was the, the new Kick-Ass reboot and it really just kind of fell flat for me so you're saying it didn't kick ass it didn't (laughs) um so uh i don't know Uh, jury's out on this one but like just based on this pitch alone and and what sean said about what it is and what it means for the industry i am very excited about it uh i think the the ad um and not necessarily that it was a trailer because we've seen comic trailers before. That's not exactly something unique. But the idea that, like, this is a trailer that they could put on the front page of Netflix. Um, mm-hmm, and that yeah. something that people interact with every single day as a place for, this is where I go to get content. And they're like, hey, like, we're making a comic book. I feel like that is a really exciting prospect. Like, how how much that's going to actually translate to sales. Like, who knows? I think that's going to depend a lot on how it's distributed and how easily you can go from, I'm on Netflix, can I click one link and buy the book? Um, And if they can pull that off, uh, even in a small way, I think this could be really successful for them and ideally be something that is, um, you know, kind of a, a stepping stone that other people in the industry will follow. 
Yeah. And I think um, just to Sean's point with regard to sort of uh, Mark's work outside of the Kick-Ass and Hit Girl stuff, uh, one series, Reborn, that we had we had both recently uh, read with uh, Greg Capullo, you know, that was, that's good stuff. It was also in that sort of magic fantasy setting um, that I think uh, can translate. Um, and, and Pete, to your point, they they have that pre-roll section before any kind of like netflix original and they can play that trailer basically across all of their properties right now like if they they wanted to at the flip of a switch they can just and someone can be like oh that's cool um and uh just within the the article that we had uh we were sort of pulling this from they uh it was noted that they're only going to have one printing of this uh and they're only expecting about 140,000 uh copies at all so they're trying to make it uh they're trying to make it appealing on two fronts one that it's like the first time that netflix is dropping this kind of thing and this kind of collaboration is happening but also they're making it it's like a moment in time and you're not getting this second printing again you're not gonna find this anywhere else unless you jump on it now that's smart yeah i think so and it'll be interesting to see like what it does digitally because yep Mm-hmm. I could see it being way more successful digitally because of the platform. And like, I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot since I saw this news come out earlier this week. And I wonder if we might not see them like launch some kind of like in-app way to watch the book or read the book like in Netflix. So you don't even have to leave the Netflix app to check out periodicals or you know because obviously this is the first thing but if it's successful they're going to do more shit like this and i don't think it'll just be comics if this works i i think that over anyone netflix are the group that has the capacity to really take uh uh comic books like uh what, what's that term the comic books that move like the watchmen motion comics thank you wow what a brain fart um I think Netflix has the potential to make motion comics a real thing more yep. than anybody. Yes. And so it's a good point. Really good I, point. I, I haven't heard, but if this trailer is not all that they have, like if they, if they really have a full fledged version of this that's watchable on Netflix, can you imagine the possibilities? That's what I originally thought this was. I thought this was a motion comic made for Netflix. I don't know that it's not. I mean, it, it it really easily could be. Um, and, and that's not unprecedented for Netflix. They've had motion comics on Netflix in the past. I remember, uh, if you guys recall, in the, like, 2010s, there was, like, a, a movement where we got a couple good motion comics. Like, I remember um, Joss Whedon's oh, X-Men. X-Men run was on yeah, was yeah. on Netflix. It was uncanny. And, uh, and it was really good. That was on Netflix? It was. That was where I watched huh. it. Um, yeah. Wow. And there were, there was one or two other ones from that set that also I think because I I think it was like a like Thor Loki Asgard story that also got a motion comic that was that might have been animated but I, I remember there was a, a big surgence of Marvel content and motion comics were a part of that at the time. So it was astonishing X Men. Uh, astonishing. We okay. It was it was Black Panther that they also had a, a motion comic book for, and uh, I feel like there well there was also the Iron Man Extremis that they yes did that was the, the other comic. one okay. Uh, and so those are all cool, but they weren't produced by Netflix. We're talking about something produced in-house. They can put their money behind this in a way that Marvel maybe can't or won't. So this is, to me, that's probably the most compelling part of this whole thing. And I can't wait to see how that unfolds, if they go down that road. 
Yeah, and I, I only meant to bring that up just to say that the idea of motion comics on Netflix is a thing we've seen in the past. So I, I don't think it's crazy. Like, I don't think it has to be uh, like a major shuffling of how they do things to even make this work in a motion comic on the, the platform and put it on the front page, you know? So uh, it drops June 13th if you are looking to get it. Um, the, I, I think Marco said that there's only going to be a hundred and something thousand copies. Yeah. 140,000 copies, so you're going to want to make sure to grab yours early before they uh, all run out. So, uh, moving over to the Batman film, uh, we've, we've this movie has been through a lot of changes. Um, there's, there's been a lot of rumors surrounding what villain it would be. Um, we know that back when Jeff Johns was, was working on this film, primarily in writing the script with Ben Affleck, the villain was supposed to be Deathstroke. Mm-hmm. Now, rumors are, are saying that it's actually going to be the Penguin, uh, that Matt Reeves is high on the Penguin and wants to utilize that character. That's according to Variety. Uh, so Justin Crawl, who reported this from Variety, uh, said the following. Take this with a grain of salt as things are constantly changing in the DCEU, but I'm hearing the Penguin is possibly the choice to play the main villain in the Batman. Sources add even if Reeves decides to go another route, the studio could then make him the villain, the main villain in Birds of Prey. So it sounds like no matter what happens, Penguin is coming really soon. Uh, Let's not focus on the Birds of Prey angle. Let's talk about the Batman. What do you guys think about getting the Penguin again? And having that be the first villain Batman takes on in what's supposed to be a trilogy of movies by Matt Reeves. <laughs> this is a great chance for Danny DeVito to make his triumphant return into a Batman movie. I'm, yeah. This is the second week in a row you've made a, a Danny DeVito. I know, movie. right? I'm the man, Penguin. <laughs> you may be the Batman, but I'm the Penguin Man. Ugh. I didn't know Danny DeVito was related to Macho Man. It's Randy. either me or no one. Macho Man Danny DeVito. Oh. <laughs> um, I like the Penguin as a villain a lot. Um, I think when he's used right, like he can be creepy. Um, but I also think he works in a straight kind of way. You know, um, he was always a character I was kind of surprised didn't make it into the Nolan trilogy because, like, ultimately he's just a weird gangster. Like that's kind of his whole spiel. And I feel like you can get a lot out of that. He's he's one of the best parts of Gotham. I've heard that a lot. I know that the guy who plays him, people really like that actor. Um, so, yeah. I don't know. I, I've, I've always found Cobblepot to be a really compelling character. Um, and, and I think it's cool that he has that range, that he can kind of fit whatever like Batman vibe you need him to in a way that I don't feel like all of his rogues gallery do. You know, like, we've seen the Joker in every fucking flavor imaginable, um, and I think some of the other characters really lend themselves to that, and I think Penguin's one of them. So I think um, if Matt Reeves is high on on Penguin and and we can get a solid uh, actor in that role, like, yeah, let's fucking go. I I could deal with another Penguin story. It's been a long time, you know? He hasn't been in a movie in, what, over a decade? Sounds like a Riverdale drug. Matt Reeves is high on the Penguin. You know, I I was just thinking that in the uh, animated series... The Penguin was probably the worst character they adapted. Uh, they did such a great job with every other character, but the Penguin was probably their weakest link oh, on that cartoon. I totally disagree. Uh, in contr- no, no, yeah, I don't, I don't feel that way. But in contrast, the Arkham games were they did a great job with the Penguin. Sure. Um, yeah, I think the Penguin lends himself to being the oddly the, 
the most grounded Batman villains to Pete's point about him not appearing in the Nolan trilogy because obviously that would have been a fit. He is a crime lord gangster in Gotham. Uh, and if you're doing kind of a, I don't know what Maverick is going to do, but like, I think for a simplistic Batman story, the Penguin is a perfect choice for just like kind of a crime noir thing. His ambitions aren't really worldwide. You know, he doesn't really want to take over Gotham. He just wants to be like the kingpin of Gotham. He's got a family feud with the Waynes that goes back a few generations, and he wants control of the weapon flow into Gotham. That's basically his motivation. Yeah, I I, uh, I really like the Penguin. I think he's, generally speaking, he's one of the more uh, celebrated Batman villains, and uh, to everyone else has said that he's malleable, and I agree with that. Um, I definitely think that there's a way to make it work. Uh, in a in a in a movie again, it worked the first time. Why not do it again? I just think that the penguin uh, would need, in my opinion, some a heavy, you know, someone to be the physical uh, force in whatever he's doing. So I think that's when you can look to a character like, well, I was gonna say Killer Croc, but he's been utilized. I, that's where my mind um, went to, and he sucked in Suicide Squad. <laughs> Do you think that the penguin can carry your franchise? <laughs> I was born in a Batman film, molded by it. The birds rise, brother. <laughs> hey guys, stop it! That's a movie I really enjoy. I'm putting a moratorium on making fun of the Dark Knight Rises on this podcast. If you make another joke about it, it'll be quite painful. For who? For you. <laughs> <laughs> These jokes can die when I say so. <laughs> Sean, do you feel in charge? Yes, actually. <laughs> Which is why we're going to move on from this. Uh, so now now let's talk about the other element of this. Do you guys think that Penguin would be a good villain for a Birds of Prey movie? Like, yes, just because I like the Penguin. The same reasons I think that he's a compelling villain, he's still a compelling villain. But I think the wrinkle of the fact that he has a blood feud with the Waynes makes him most compelling as a foil to Batman. Um, and I think we could easily find a heavy to like Clayface or somebody else, like just somebody oh. who's right. Like he's just cool. He's a cool design oh character. God, he doesn't yeah. really need to be anything more than that, you know, to just be the heavy. Um, and I feel like Clayface was one of the better adapted villains in the anime. He was, um, also, there's been kind of a resurgence in interest in him lately since he was in Tom King's run and he's been kind of a hero and stuff. And then he just died recently, right? Yes. Uh, maybe in, detec in Detective Comics. Okay. But either either way, um, the point stands. I feel like a character like that could work to support the Penguin, but I would most like to see him with Batman just because I think, especially with the Batman we have, like an older Batman who's more experienced, it would be cool if, like, he knows that Bruce is Batman already, like, there is this ongoing feud, and he's ready to take it to the next level for some reason. Well, that's that's the other wrinkle, is just that uh, it's confirmed that they've already had run-ins, because yeah. in Batman Superman, uh, uh, they make reference. Bat Batman's talking to Alfred, and they make reference to having dealt with the Penguin before. Mm, okay, so that that's kind of cool because we've never really seen. Uh, yeah, we've never seen Batman fight someone in a movie that's a recurring villain, right? Like that idea doesn't exist. It's always a one and done. So I would love to see him go up against someone he has history with, which is why I was thinking it would be cool if they did. Uh, 
Death, uh, not Deathstroke, uh, Red Hood, but... Steppen, Steppenwolf. Oh! I, I, have, I have two thoughts, actually. On the, on, the, on the topic of Penguin being in, uh, uh, being a reoccurring villain, for the Birds of Prey movie, I really like the idea of either the first or second act of that film taking place in the Iceberg Lounge, where you kind of get a cameo of the Penguin, because I think a venue like that lends itself well for uh, a team like the Birds of Prey. Where like they're maybe sleuthing to try to find someone in there to like move on the plot. Um, then my second thought was, um, do you think that there will be a scene in the Batman movie where the Penguin is cornered by the Batman and he says something with regard to Martha and it completely disengages him? No, I you've don't think you've so. completely disengaged me from this topic. I mean, if he if he uh, knows who Bruce is, I mean, he might as well. And that could be an interesting plot twist. So, Kale, you 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 seem to have some reactions to what's being said. What's your take on this? I I so my my disagreement is that I don't think the penguin would be a good antagonist for the birds of prey. Um, oh, all right. I I as I've said, like I I I like penguin as a Batman villain. I like penguin as a Batman and Robin villain. I like Penguin as a Batman and Robin and Batgirl villain, but the birds are prey to me. If you if you just give them Cobblepot, like it sort of to me it lessens their impact as a team. You know, whereas like the Justice League on their first outing were fighting Steppenwolf, the the birds of prey are are a, a dynamic team as well. And it to me, it's like it's like okay, well, you're gonna give the first all female superhero squad the B list villain. Like, come on. Well, I mean, Justice League had a B list villain too. Do you really want him to fight Steppenwolf? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Fair. I, I would I would say the fucking Penguin's a more A list villain than him. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. I, I, I think I see your point, though, Kale, right? Like, you don't want to have them go, yes, go yes. up against a guy who could be beaten by just Batman. Or just any one of the Birds of Prey. Yeah. Like, in in theory, the Justice League was supposed to go up against Apocalypse, who, like, Steppenwolf was supposed to lead to, right? Dark side. Yeah. Nope, that's, uh, nope, nope. <laughs> Crossover. I know what I said. <laughs> but, Justice League, uh, Age yeah, of yeah, Apocalypse. Yeah, that exactly. <laughs> 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 I'm fucking fired, hey boys. I am apocalypse. Oh my god! All right, let's uh, let's jump over to the world of Sony and their million plus spinoffs of Spider-Man. Oh boy! So, yeah, the best part of the show. So we haven't checked in in a little while with what's going on in this in this world, um, and they've had a lot of goodwill because of the Venom trailer and people really enjoying that. But we cannot forget who we're dealing with. We are dealing with Sony. Now, Silver and Black has been removed from their schedule. Oh, thank God. Why would you do that? Don't get too excited yet. The The movie was supposed to be released in February. Uh, and so they've now taken it off the slate and it's undated. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's canceled. It just means that it's not coming out in February. The funny part about this is that they're supposed to have been shooting in March, but there's no script. So <laughs> uh, the director of the film, uh, Gina Prince-Bythewood, uh, she's 
she was asked about this for an update in May, and she said the update is really just pounding out the script. It all starts with the script. You gotta have a great script, so we want to make sure that's right before we jump in. CP. Now, why why would you set a date for filming if the script is not even close to being done. I'm glad you asked, Sean. It's because these movies... They're hopeful. ...are trash. They're hopeful. And uh, they're being made as a cash grab, and there's not any um, thought being put into them whatsoever. It's just like, hey, what characters do we have that people might have heard of? Yeah, let's put out a movie in six months. It's bad. Sounds like Solo. But hold on. Solo's supposed to be good. <laughs> what? Like, so, I, that's I'm my saying, point. So, maybe... I saw, I saw Solo. It was it was a fine film. Didn't did I actually liked it quite a bit. But uh, yeah, no, but see, Ron Howard, competent director. I don't know about any of these people, but this woman hasn't even seen a script yet. The fuck is she supposed to do with that? He came in and he came in and fixed a mess. This is already a mess from the start. Could be good. <laughs> no, no, it couldn't. No. <laughs> I, I'm just saying, you know, Sony may be churning this out for a quick cash grab but you know what she said some really encouraging things like you know what your script's gotta be good and we're not gonna start filming until the script's good and you know what it shows that sony's gotta put their money where their mouth is and maybe you shouldn't talk so much shit so quickly no i think i think what it shows me is that um she has now given me the confidence to say well this movie is never gonna come out then because the script will never be good. And now Woody Harrelson's playing Carnage in 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 the next Venom movie. They're doing all the right things. Glad you brought that Some up. Some might say they're the best studio. So uh, Woody Harrelson has recently been doing some interviews, and he's been asked about uh, his role in Venom. And he's been coy about exactly who he's playing. We know he's playing Carnage. He's playing Cletus Cassidy. And he has said that the role that he has is small in the Venom film. But that in the sequel, the alleged sequel, he'll have a much, much bigger part to play. So that leads me to believe that there'll be a, like a Carnage cameo type of thing. And then they'll go into the full Carnage story uh, in, in Venom 2. Uh, what do you guys think about that? I'm in. Let's do it. I like Woody Harrelson. I, that's all. I like Woody Harrelson. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give it a try. I side with Kale. I agree with that. I, I also really like Woody Harrelson. And in fact, I actually really like him as a choice for Cletus Cassidy. Um, that being said... He's got that real serial killer vibe. No, all right. We're all in agreement. Cool. No, that being said, I'm convinced that Venom is going to be bad. So hopefully they don't get to the second movie. No, nah, it's going to be a trilogy. <laughs> I'm into it. Yeah, Marco, good point. I don't think it'll be a trilogy, but I, I bet we get two movies. I think we'll I think at the end of the day, and the way that Return of the King received a million Academy Awards is kind of a, a compilation for all three Lord of the Rings films. Venom three will definitely <laughs> probably sweep the Academy Awards in twenty twenty two. Well, who would even be the villain in Venom three? Who's even the villain in Venom one? The, 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 the better question: What Oscar would they win? All of them: Best Actor, Ooh. Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Comedy, Best Drama. <laughs> Some of these are Academy Awards, but they'll make them. Best Makeup and Costume. Yeah, nah, for sure. Easy, because how could you compete with Suicide Squad? Of course, that's like the standard bear, right? For that category. Okay, so so <laughs> moving along, we've got details on another spinoff that they're making. All right. Uh, this time we're talking about Morbius. Morbius, uh, the living vampire, is on the docket for Sony and that hashtag show who have broken tons of news over the last few years. 
uh, alleged that they reached out to some of their contacts at Sony, and this is what they had to say about the film. It's a horror action story of a scientist who, in trying to find a cure for a rare blood disease, accidentally transformed himself into a living vampire who, though disgusted by his own bloodlust, chooses to prey upon criminals he deems unworthy of life. Isn't this the plot of Blade? (laughs) Not quite. We got a new Blade. So this is... Like all all these movies, just like feel like I don't I don't really feel like any of these are gonna come together. Like that Silver Surfer movie that we're supposed to be getting from Fox. It's like all right, we'll fucking see. Um, but I I do think like that there's a I think there's a compelling film to be made with Mobius. Um, and I feel like that sounds like a more Morbius. Morbius sorry. Um, and I I think that that sounds like a pretty Mobius is the guy from the Matrix, right? Yeah, I think so. Morpheus. Morpheus. Oh, Morpheus. Jesus. (laughs) Either way, I I think that sounds like a good pitch. It reminds me a lot of what's compelling to me about the Spawn movie. But by that point, won't Spawn have already come out? Are we going to need a second movie that apes that kind of vibe? I don't know. Yes. Well, Morpheus is more of a humanized figure. Sure. In the sense that there's a tragedy to him. Spawn. There's tragedy to Spawn, but it's, it's it's hard to really care about a guy who's you know, got this demon armor with him that allows him to just tear stuff up. Whereas Morbius is like, damn, he's the victim of an accident. You know? Yeah, yeah. You'll be asking, is he more a uh, vampire than a human or hum- more human than vampire? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's true, though. But also, yeah, Morbius is going for more of a superhero vibe. Yeah. A superhero horror vibe, whereas Spawn is going for more of a horror superhero vibe. I, and I guess, I guess that could be... I guess that could work as kind of like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of thing where like we watch him, you know, descend into vampirism and like be dealing with all that emotion and fallout and everything. And then, you know, him coming to terms with the fact that that's his reality and how can he do it in a way that's non-destructive? Like there's a compelling narrative there. Do you you think the end of the movie is him taking the red pill? (laughs) Uh, So to your point, Pete, uh, I think that's that's all the more reason why he should be in a Spider-Man movie. Because that narrative that you just laid out sounds exactly like something that Sam Raimi would have done in if he were making a movie. You got this. Go ahead, Kale. It doesn't matter what they do. The drama that they put forth will not match the the drama that happened in Spider-Man: The Animated Series in those Morbius. (laughs) Those were fantastic. Felicia. Yeah. Oh, that was her name. You get that Tommy Wiseau Morbius voice. (laughs) Holy shit, that's who should play him. Tommy Wiseau as Morbius, though. All right. The the only other thing I wanted to say was that this movie actually sounds more to me like Venom than anything else. Mm. They're very similar premises. So I worry about that element of it as well. I'm not entirely sure that this is a movie that will come out, to be honest. I don't think so. I don't think think any of these movies, aside from Venom, are actually going to materialize. Personally, and Venom too. Um, Haven't they already made more progress on M- Morbius though? Uh, no. So the movie is in pre-production currently, and they've got um, Avi Arad is, is is a producer, and then there's another producer, a, a big name producer that they've got on board, and then they're talking about Gary Gray, who directed uh, uh, Fate of the Furious. They're, the, he's in negotiations to uh, direct the movie. So I I don't know. It's already a step further than. The Black Cat movie, right? No, Silver and Black uh, has. I mean, it was already supposed to have started shooting. So they've their director is lined up. Uh, they've got 
they've got their ducks in a row. They're just missing the one kind of critical element called a script. Like the big duck. Yeah. yeah. The big, only the biggest duck is missing. So uh, we've got some, some weird news, more weird news in the world of Stan Lee to report. Because uh, police recently responded to Stan Lee's home uh, due to a, a, a situation that was unfolding in which two gunmen were, were at Stan's uh, home. So the Daily Mail is, is reporting this and, you know. Uh, I, I don't I don't know that they're super reputable, but they're I've not. Seen, they're a rag. I've seen this story kind of pop up in other places as well. But uh, so what what's alleged is that um, uh, police units and a helicopter rushed to Stanley's home in Hollywood Hills and two uh, suspected gunmen were detained uh, around 730 p.m. on Thursday night. Um, so the LAPD actually did release a statement on the matter. Uh, they said officers were called to a property on the 9100 block of Oriole Way at 7.30 p.m. after reports of an assault. It was claimed that a suspect had a gun and was threatening. Uh, so unless the Daily Mail is making that up, this sounds legitimate. Um, officers detained two individuals that matched the description and an investigation is ongoing. Three units are still on scene, including officers and detectives. So... This is weird, right? But then it gets even weirder uh, because the Daily Mail got allegedly additional information from an unnamed source who said there were two guys standing outside demanding money. They were shouting. There was a confrontation with Stan in front of his house, but Stan doesn't know either of them. One guy was saying, I want my money. But when everyone realized that the men had guns, everyone retreated inside. Stan's lawyer, business partner, and a nurse were with him at the house. At some point, the men took out their guns and were pointing them around, so the police were called. Now, this is, like I said, this is another story in the weird ongoing saga of Stan Lee's life, right? Uh, There's the whole Twitter thing going on now where he just got on Twitter and then he deleted all his... Uh, all the people he was following and Kira Morgan is Kia Morgan is, is, is very attached. And all of the only people that Stan is following anymore are Kia Morgan and Kia Morgan supporters. So it's just very, very weird. What's going on. What do you, what do you guys make of this? Well, I think we should just go right to the source. Uh, old man, Stan, what did you do to dispatch these villains? No, no, no. Did you no, beat no, them up? No, 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 no. Not touching that one with a 10 foot pole, my friend. All right, I was gonna just go for jokes, but that's cool. <laughs> I don't want to. Jo- I don't want to joke about you know people breaking into a ninety-year-old man's house with guns, Phil. Not about I'm, it. I was gonna say you were gonna Hulk up and beat him up like a superhero or something like. There's plenty of rooms for jokes, but it's cool. No, I, I think that I think we can let that bit die. Well, in any uh, event, uh, go ahead, Kill. Especially with all the the Twitter drama, like it. Uh, I I shared this tweet. Um, with you guys on our personal chat, he 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 mentioned to J.K. Rowling about getting uh, the X Men and Doctor Strange into Hogwarts to teach wizardry or magic or whatever bullshit. Like, I, I can't I can't wrap my head around what is going on. Uh, and you know, obviously, it's because there's a, a nonagenarian who is, you know, on the other side of the world from me, but whom I don't know. But like, it's like this situation is so bizarre. 
like it very like it very well could have been two people who you know uh worked for or with you know this this uh, his business partner kia morgan who you know got feel like they got shafted and uh you know or you know maybe stan put something out you know and wasn't in the right frame of mind and you know uh this this literally could it could be anything yeah you're you're absolutely right we don't know enough and it but it but it's very weird that all these situations keep occurring and i think that at the center of every single one is this kia morgan fellow why is he always around he's obviously the source of something sketchy going on you know like regardless of what's actually happening like the, the where there's smoke there's fire and something is obviously not right um but yeah i mean not to get too like conspiracy theory about it but the thing that kale said um i was kind of thinking a similar thing like i wonder if this kia morgan guy didn't try to orchestrate like a break-in you know or something like that like maybe like you know what I mean? Like, and that it is crazy. It is like a little speculative, but like there's obviously shady shit going on with this guy who's trying to squeeze as much money as possible out of Stanley before he drops dead. You know, we talked about that whole thing of like him being his handler or his people being his handler at that comic convention. They didn't let him rest. You know, like there obviously is, is some, some form of elder abuse seems to be going on here. And, uh, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if it was something like that, if he's involved. Well, did you guys see that tweet he posted uh, on the 26th to Elon Musk where he was like, yeah, I agree with Elon Musk that the media should be held accountable to tell the truth. Many reporters are honest, but fake news outlets like The Hollywood Reporter should not be spreading lies. Go Elon. I feel like when you're talking about fake news, it's not usually fake. Like there's some smoke to that. You know what I mean? Something strange is definitely happening in the life of Stan Lee. Well, the other the other thing, you know, in that vein is that I'm not necessarily convinced that all of those tweets are coming from him, from Stan. Yeah. He did have that tweet where he was like, I'm tweeting on my own now, finally. Yeah, I don't actually know that any of them are. Because he can't even see, right? So... Yeah, like, what is he doing? Like, having somebody read his Twitter feed and, like, dictate tweets to... So, you know, it's like, I don't know. I think I think there's probably some truth to that. And I should I shouldn't say he can't see, he can't read. He he had that tweet where he said I'm gonna, I'm taking over my Twitter account for myself finally. No one else is using it. And then he was like, "Hey, can people show me how to upload videos so I can answer people's questions on here?" And he started like posting videos of himself on his Twitter answering just generic questions. I don't know. It, it it gets more and more concerning. It feels like every month there's a new and we we haven't even reported on some of the, you know, the Twitter stuff and different things just because it's it's constant. It's nonstop. And I'm very concerned about where this is going to land. Well, and like the thing is, like, you know, like we said, Stan Lee is 95 years old. Why does Stan Lee need a Twitter presence? Because he's a brand. At 95 years old, Stan is. Lee is a brand. Yes, In what universe is he not? But I, but I think Kale's point... At that point, age, like, he doesn't need to be. I think Kale's point, though, is that, like... Why, like, what is, okay, so let's say that Stan Lee really is involved in his Twitter and he genuinely wants to do this. That's fantastic. If he's having fun, that's great. But I don't buy that. 
I believe that this Kia Morgan is forcing him to do all these things. And I could see a scenario where he's sitting there like, hey, you need to tweet. You need to say these things. You know, he is a brand. You're right. But I feel like that brand is being manipulated. It's my issue. That's a heavy, heavy remark. I, I, and I hate to, I don't want to say these things. You know, I, I don't because we love Stan. But it's just weird. It's weird what's going on. It could be right. I don't know. Moving along, uh, Stuart Eminen uh, is one of the artists on Amazing Spider-Man number 800. And we're going to talk about that very shortly because we're going to review, be reviewing that book for you guys. Uh, but after uh, that issue, after he wrapped that issue, which his portion was phenomenal, um, Wade Von Gra- Grawbadger uh, has stated that now that that happened, Eminem is retired. Uh so that's obviously a shocking piece of news in and of itself. But uh, Eminem spoke to Newsarama and said that that's not quite true. Uh, he said the following. My exclusive agreement with Marvel wound down some time ago. Everyone involved is happily still on good terms. As to the rest, I have no immediate plans. If the right project with the right collaborator- collaborators came along, I would of course consider it. For the moment, however, Catherine, his wife, and I are enthusiastically devoting our time and energy to non-work matters. So, uh, first of all, Stuart Eminem is a phenomenal creator and I think um, unsung in some ways, just because I feel like there's a lot of other artists that get a lot more hype around them than he does. So, I wanted to sort of bring this up, but also say, like, do you guys think that he gets the... Uh, recognition for the career that he has had, the the stellar run that he has had. Do you think he gets the recognition that he deserves? Not. I wanna. I wanna. I wanna jump in very quickly because I don't know who Stuart Eminem is. Uh, bummer. <sighs> okay. Um. It's it. It's funny because one of your favorite artists has said he's his biggest influence. Um. <laughs> but yeah, we had uh, Isaac on the show. You know, a long time ago. Um. And uh, and he had said that. That Stuart Eminem was one of his greatest influences, and yeah, um, I think you're right, Sean. Like, clearly evidence that he doesn't get the the uh, respect that he deserves for, I mean, just the caliber of his talent, let alone like the career that he's had. Like, he's a phenomenal artist. Um, but I mean, this is great for him. You know, I'm happy for him that he's at a point in his career where he can retire and just say like, I'm gonna do whatever like looks good to me, but otherwise, like, I'm gonna hang out with my wife and. Enjoy my life. Good for him, man. He's earned it. His work on Secret Identity with Kurt Busiek, um, I think it really makes that book in a lot of ways. I mean, uh, Kurt Busiek is a phenomenal writer in this industry. And in a lot of ways, he's kind of unheralded himself. But uh, Stuart Eminem, his, his attention to detail, especially with people, like his the way he designs people uh, – there are not a lot of people that can draw human beings the way he can. There are some panels in Amazing Spider-Man 800 that blew me away. And Absolutely. The majority of the ones that I'm referencing came from Eminem's portion of the book. Uh, he's brilliant. The 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 best part of the... Well, we got to it. Never mind. <laughs> oh, did you read it? Yeah. What? Yeah, I had no I, idea. I'm so yeah, happy to God, hear that. that was the first time I've ever seen one Carnage in a comic and two Stuart Eminem's <clears throat> art. Great! Oh my God! 
Uh, any any final thoughts on uh, Stuart? I, I think uh, Kale, you were going to jump in. I I mean I I can't add much more. Um, I you know I I love Eminem's art. I, I I'm very pumped that he you know as is at a point where he can stop if he wants to and and take a break because monthly comics are uh, uh, a haul. Um, my my favorite part about this whole discussion is that a lot of comics artists that i follow on twitter were like we can do that we can we can retire yeah uh i think i think that the fact that he's able to do that is is pretty damn cool because it's very unheard of um and it speaks to the great career that he has had that he's he's i mean he's been steadily working for the longest time and uh i'm assuming that they pay him very handsomely for his work and he deserves every bit of that so hats off to you Stuart Eminem. So, uh, as promised, we are reviewing uh, a few books for you guys this week. This was a huge week for comics, and uh, we, we picked the standouts to talk about. So we're talking about Amazing Spider-Man 800, Man of Steel number 1, and Doomsday Clock number 5. So we're going to start with Spider-Man 800. This is a groundbreaking landmark issue uh, that marks, obviously, the 800th issue, or 800.5, if you will, if you count Amazing Fantasy. Sure. Um and uh, Dan Sl- the, the the penultimate issue of Dan Slott's monumental 10-year run on the character, something that's unprecedented, unprecedented in today's comic book industry, and it features incredible art by several people who have contributed and been the main players during Dan Slott's big run. So, um, Marco, I, I kind of want to start with you just because I, I don't think you really have consumed much Spider-Man content. So I'm really curious as to what you thought about this one. Um, so I guess just to, just to start it, because I haven't been following the series and because I don't follow Spider-Man in general, I was very lost as to what's happening. Everything was just kind of thrown at you. And then even, uh, even at like other levels like things that i thought i was familiar with like the green goblin or carnage they're now like one and it's like okay well how do i process that and what does that mean i don't like i don't even have context for history with that like at least green goblin like i can understand okay i I know his i know of his relationship and i know his relationship with peter parker like i get that but i have no idea how to process like that i have no idea who anti-venom was like all these characters just kind of getting just getting thrown into it was very very jarring um, that said, it, it was written in a way where because there was so much action going on, you didn't need all that background necessarily. And you didn't need that context to to just be in it for the ride. And I think I, I think I was approaching this book and uh, Man of Steel with that perspective of just like, I don't know these characters. I'm just here for a ride. Um, and at the end of the day, I, th- I think I got that. Um, but if it was... It, I'm pretty sure it means different things to you guys. Like for me, it didn't it didn't mean anything, you know. But did I enjoy it? Was it crafted well? I thought so. Um, and then uh, the only other thing I would say was just there were moments with uh, with the art um, because there there were so many pages and there were so many collaborators. Uh, I appreciate that they tried to keep them within large chunks um versus like sometimes they do like oh the next page is somebody else you know at least here there were sort of kind of chapters to ease people in so i so i appreciate that as well um and 
yeah, I mean, otherwise, I thought it was, uh, it was fun. It was, you know, it was, it was an okay comic. I, I didn't have any, you know, like, glaring issues with it, and but I didn't come away with anything more than I sort was sort of expecting. Okay, that's. I think that's more than fair. Uh, Pete, what'd you what'd you get out of this? Uh, I I really enjoyed this issue. Um, which is surprising to me, honestly, because, you know, I've been a vocal critic of, of Slot's run on, on Amazing Spider-Man. Um, I've been removed from the book for a really long time. Uh, so coming into it, um, I did kind of have those concerns that Marco expressed of like, I don't really know where these characters are right now. Like, I don't know if they're going to be the characters that I know. And, um, and I don't, I don't know. And I'm interested to hear what you think about this, Sean, since you've been following this run. Um... I don't know if it was like written in the way that it was written because it was this big, big event issue and they expected to get lapsed fans to pick it up. Um, but I found it to be super uh, accessible. Um, I think all of the main characters yeah. who were utilized um, in this issue specifically anyway are characters that if you're a Spider-Man fan, you know, um, you know, and like some of them are in different places, right? Like I didn't know that Flash Thompson had the anti-venom uh suit mm-hmm. at this point but i know who flash thompson is i know what he's been doing over the last two decades of publication history um so picking it up and just being like okay that's where he's at fine right same with j jonah jameson like i know that peter and him have a different relationship now and like they're closer he's become a confidant to him in some ways and he's you know so i i knew enough to be able to pick it up and run with it where it is and um and, and I got to say, like, it grabbed me. You know, it's it's the first Spider-Man um, issue that's new that I've read in, aside from that one amazing Spider-Man that you got me to read because it had that conversation between Peter and Gwen. It's the it's the first one I've read since, like, 2010. Um, and uh, and I, I really liked it. You know, like, I don't, I don't think it was, um, you know, revelatory or anything like that. I don't think it's one of the greatest issues of Spider-Man of all time or anything like that. But uh, I thought it was a really great, kind of I guess just honoring of the character's history I think they made a lot of great callbacks um to previous conflicts with him and the goblin and uh in a way that felt earned not like referential you know like it feels like these two characters have history they fucking hate each other and that's coming across in their conflict not we want to reference all these big moments that you remember you know and I appreciated that um, I mean, even with like J. Jonah Jameson, with like when he comes in with the the bot, like he comes in in the big suit, yeah. like that's a way throwback to like an original, like one of the original uh, Spider-Man runs. Like that's really cool stuff. Yeah, and and even in um like little things, like I remember, like there's the you know the the moment where they kind of like played at the whole glider thing coming at him, and he's like, ah, classic, you know, like <laughs> shit like that, where like the the humor landed for me in ways where I think it really could have easily not. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know, like, there's lots of little nods that, that definitely drew me in as a lapsed reader of The Amazing Spider-Man. So, um, I'm definitely going to pick up 801 and, and see what Slot does for his goodbye. And, uh, I'm really excited for, for the new direction, you know, like, um, obviously this, I don't know, it's hard to say since I haven't been engaged with the book. But it feels like this is setting us up for like kind of a new status quo and where we're going to be going for this new run. And I like the players who are involved. 
you know, and, and I like, I like how they treated Peter. I like the voice that I'm hearing, uh, for him in this issue. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like I, I can't, I can't say that I'm still going to be reading amazing Spider-Man, you know, after this next arc, but I'm certainly interested in, in picking up amazing Spider-Man month to month in a way I haven't been in almost 10 years. Uh, and this issue was, was a big part of that. It sounds like you need to dip in the archives now. What is what does this do for your looking back at Dan Slott's like run? Like, is, does this interest you at all? And if the next issue is good and his for his farewell is uh, appropriate, do you, does does that interest you in maybe going back and picking up some of this stuff to see where it got to? I'll say this: it puts that on the table for me in a way that I don't think it ever was before. Because I, I I don't know that I'm interested enough to go do that and read ten years of. Spider-Man comics I didn't read, um, but I, uh, I, I did like this issue, and if I get into the next arc and I find that there are gaps that I have because I didn't read Slots Run, I could realistically see myself maybe going back and trying to fill in some of those gaps and understand what's been going on with Peter for the last 10 years in a more um, active way. Because I have a vague idea of what Slot's been doing. And every time I've jumped back in to try and see what's up, it just never appealed to me. And I think the reason this does appeal to me is because it's honestly like a more meat and potato Spider-Man story. You know, where I think Slot has really tried to push the character in new directions in a lot of ways over the last couple of years. Um, to a lot of, you know, not a lot of people have enjoyed that. So... Maybe it's time for me to rethink it and try to look at it with a fresh pair of eyes. But in the same breath, I'm more excited for where we're going moving forward from where Slot's leaving things off than I am in going back and reading the last 10 years of stuff. Cool. So uh, I think, Pete, that you would get a lot out of going back. And the reason that I feel that way is so because the run is now nearly complete, I think it's a lot easier to swallow the changes when you can read them at once as opposed to month to month being like this just isn't my spider-man because if you read it one thing that you come to understand is that everything was deliberate dan slot very clearly had a plan in place that has played out incredibly over 10 years and especially this most recent run uh uh so the the relaunch run of uh, Marvel Now or whatever the hell, all new, whatever, uh, has been very, very good. And uh, yes, it's taken Spider-Man in new directions, but it's also exposed more things about his character than I think we knew. And so for me, as somebody who has been reading this, seeing Spider-Man back in his old costume, having lost everything, everything's been taken from him, um but still having this support system and seeing at the end that it's back to basics, that, that, that this is it, you know? Um, it was an incredible climax to a story that has just been so superb. Uh, you know, the, the whole Red Goblin thing, at first I was very uh, apprehensive because I don't typically like those kind of weird mashups like that, but it, it, it's, it's, it worked great. The idea that Norman Osborn is at the end of his rope with Spider-Man and like, I really need to kill this guy. So I'm going to do something extremely drastic to get it done. Um, and how close he ultimately does come to not just killing Spider-Man, but everyone he cares about. This is the kind of stuff 
that you want to see. A lot of times, writers will bring back villains and they don't really have a lot to do and uh, they don't get to push the character. Green Goblin always pushes Spider-Man. And he's appeared several times throughout Dan Slott's run, and the, the ante has been upped every single time. So this is just, an, it's, it's amazing that we got to this place. Um, I, my, my perspective on this issue was uh, I thought it was a little weird that there was so much that was kind of um, not new reader friendly. A lot of the characters that appear in this book, if you haven't been reading, you have no clue who they are. But that being said, the characters who you know the least about actually have the least to do. So that kind of helps soften that blow. Um, I thought Dan Slott's writing was top notch. Uh, he, he really did a great job. And uh, the art was overall very, very good. I I'll be honest with you, I didn't care for the first uh, chapter's art. Uh, I believe it was Nick Bradshaw that, that did it. I, I I just, I wasn't into it. His Spider-Man looks weird. I agree. I thought uh, I thought that was definitely the yeah. weakest chapter art-wise. Or at least on Spider-Man. Because I, I did like when it got closer to like with the J. Jim Janison, like some of the, the inking that was done on that stuff. I think specifically the Spider-Man figure was like the issue. I feel like it was specifically the eyes and the head shape. Is yes. really yeah, awkward. Yeah, um, the the eyes are too small, and like that's Spider Man's face is his eyes. Well, it used to be small. Amazing Fantasy number fifteen. He had small eyes. Well, it, I don't know if you can necessarily see this, but I'm holding up the comic book right now for you. Does that look right to you? I think it's I think it's a fair interpretation. I think it goes back to his original drawing. Okay, fair enough. Um, so I but I really loved the Humberto Ramos portion. He did. He, oh my god, his Venom was 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 uh, really really cool. So good. Uh, yeah, that that um the the first scene where we see Venom, you know, like where where uh where he's coming in through the that window and everything, like is so cool. Um, and yeah, I, I Venom's like I like it when Pete talks about Venom in a positive way. I like Venom. That's why I don't want the Venom movie. Shut up. Um, you get to talk when we talk about Superman. This is my favorite character. <laughs> and I just want to call attention to, I, I really love the way, uh, Ramos draws Mary Jane. Yes. Um, in general, but yeah, in this issue, it's, it's great on display. I just, I just really like his character models. Like, I like that it looks like a lot of his characters, like, just have eyeliner on for no reason and shit like that. Like, there's just something about his style that really speaks to me. Um, and I think it works for Spider-Man because it, it's got like, a a lightness to it, you know? But when he draws stuff that is darker or heavier, like like that first shot of uh of Doctor Octopus when he comes in and like he pins down um Normie is like very like it's very imposing, you know? It's like he looks intense as hell. That's interesting. It reminds me of or like to an extent it sort of reminds me of uh Ultimate Spider Man, where like some of the inks are a bit fatter. Yeah. Um and like more just there's more, a couple more lines and stuff. Yeah, that's very much uh, a style that speaks to me when it's executed well. Um, and yeah, I, I guess like this has been Octopus's costume for a bit now or whatever, but I've, I've never seen this before and I love this design. I think this is such a cool look for him. Is this still the Hydra costume? The one that came out in Secret Empire? or He's got like, it's like all white 
with like a Spider-Man kind of face. It's got like a green infinity symbol on his chest that like yeah, that's it. That, that's the one. Yeah, and then and then he's got the classic trench coat. So I'm like, yeah, like this is cool. It's cool as oh, fuck. I didn't know yeah, about the trench coat. Yeah, sick. So uh, the other artist, the, the 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 next artist up is uh, Giuseppe Camoncoli. Now he is the artist that I most associate with Dan Slott's run because. Uh, the best of this run, in my opinion, was drawn by him. And he killed it in this issue. He really brought his A-game. Cam Smith inks for him all the time. And that pairing is just money. I really, really love what he brought to the table here. And I'm so glad that they were able to get him back for this. Because to me personally, it would not be the end of Dan Slott's run without Common Coley being involved. So... I really loved his part. Dude, that one page that he did where um, where uh, Harry comes in on the glider, and then it's that transition of Norman with the the Carnage symbiote going over his face, and like the 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 oh, the, yeah. the um, there's like a gradient in the text box and every or not the text box, the word balloons. Uh, that is one of the best panels in this entire issue. It's so fucking cool. Um, his his style, I think, compared to I, I think the rest was probably like the loosest um there's like a lot more uh scratches and lines like on people's faces and stuff it, it's really cool stuff so then next we just talked about him Stuart Eminen. uh his portion of the book pound for pound is probably the best looking it i mean what he brings to this issue I, like there are so many panels that i really feel like deserve to be highlighted but when they I'll just I'll show you guys uh, for those of you watching uh, this part. I don't mm-hmm. know if you can yeah. see it yeah. particularly well. Uh, so when so oh, basically wow. Spider-Man goads uh, Norman into removing the Carnage symbiote, and Spider-Man himself removes the uh, Venom symbiote, which he acquires uh, during this issue from Eddie Brock. Um, they both take their symbiotes off, and they have this epic fight just between Spider-Man and Green Goblin, just old school. You know, this it's a it's classic, right? And, Fist of cups. Um, yeah, exactly. And it's just so well drawn. I don't even know how to express how good Eminem is here, dude. That that um, it's that same page that you showed, but the the alternate thing, the thing of Peter, where he's like, "Your move, Osborne." Like that is such a yeah. fu- he's like just totally um lit up by all the fire and everything. It looks so intense and um. It's cool because, uh, like, Spider-Man, I feel like, is a character, like, you know, he he's lighthearted. You know, like, he, he's not a dark character. But when he's drawn the right way, his his design can be very imposing. And, uh, and I love the, just the power of this image, you know? Like, that, like, it, he just looks like he's staring through him, you know? And uh, it's intense as hell. See, my big thing with the issue i think my own part of my only critique was just how it ended where it's like it plays to and and maybe this is just because of that gap of knowledge but like he plays to goblin's ego to defeat him and it's just like oh you're not the one who's really going to be me it's going to be carnage i'm like okay that's kind of cheesy like as an as an ending to like such an like an epic fight it's like oh, you're not the one that's really going to beat me. Like, okay, who cares? Like, that's not the point necessarily that you're trying to... Well, no, but it but it is the point, yeah. Like, that. I think that is a gap of knowledge because, like, that's the whole thing is, like, they have, 
like a bitter rivalry and the whole like, yeah, he wants him out of the way so he can do whatever he wants to do. But he also wants to beat him, make him suffer and have him know that he won. So there's actually some missing context if you haven't been reading this particular run on that issue, because uh, this happens before where uh, Norman Osborn, I forget exactly what he had. He had some kind of device or something like that, and he uses it and he's about to kill Peter. And Peter essentially says to him, all right, you're going to win, but you're not beating me on your own. You're, 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 you have a handicap. And so Norman throws away whatever it was, and they just have a fight just like this, and Spider-Man wins because he outsmarts him and plays on his ego. Norman Osborn always loses that way. In fact, he could have killed Spider-Man a long time ago with this costume. He's way, way stronger than him. He didn't want to. He wanted to tear him apart limb from limb, but also uh, destroy his world, kill everyone in his life. And that's where Norman always fails, is his desire to ruin Peter's life as opposed to just kill him. And that that the way Marco phrased that uh reminded me of um secret uh no uh fucking infinity gauntlet when Adam Warlock says, you know, you're your own worst enemy, you aren't worthy of blah blah blah. And it's just like to 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 people who aren't reading it, it's just like Really? Like, that's it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just, like, I don't, I guess I don't understand where you guys are coming from on that. Just because, like, I don't, I don't see why a, a villain being prideful doesn't make sense. You know, like, it's, it's a man whose entire thing is his legacy, you know, his company with his name on it, you know, um, I feel like it's it's not any different than, like, that's a, something that happens to Lex Luthor all the time, right? It's like, he wants to beat Superman, and and he wants everyone to know he beat Superman because it's not really about beating Superman. It's about proving that he's better than Superman. I, I can understand why Marco would feel that way in the sense of he he's not into this character. Sure. So he has no no basis for understanding the relationship. Now, I, I did have gripes with this issue. Uh, I don't think it's perfect. I really didn't care much for the way that Spider-Man is just chasing Norman around. Mm. Uh, most of the time... He's just trying to to put fires out, and there's not a lot that happens between them until they get to Times Square and they have this 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 uh, blowout. Um, I, I felt like that could have been handled better. Also, I didn't think it made a ton of sense that um, that that Norman. Norman had all these ducks in a row, right? And there were a lot of coincidences that allowed him to not succeed, like Anti-Venom being able to go and get and save Mary Jane, but also go to this place and that place. He got around a lot in one yeah. night, and that bothered me. Um, and uh, I also didn't care a ton for Spider-Man wearing the black costume again. Uh, I don't really see why Eddie Brock would be willing to relinquish that. That doesn't really, that that doesn't really speak to the way that the relationship between him and his symbiote is typically portrayed. So I didn't really, that didn't really land for me. But uh, that's super interesting because for me, as someone who doesn't read it, that a hundred percent landed for me. I was like, oh, cool, like he has that other suit, that other, the one other suit that I know about. Yeah, Um, I thought it was interesting because I think I probably fall somewhere between those two opinions. I I thought it was cool to see him back in the black suit. um, And I I thought it was cool that there's been growth since that. You know, like even the way that he interacts with the symbiote is different 
than it would it would have ever been at a previous point in in um that specific character's history uh because the symbiote's been through a lot you know it's grown with flash it's back with eddie now like it's less bloodthirsty and violent you know cool um so i thought that was a neat thing just to like it, it felt more like it was a nod to the past than it was like a relevant plot development but i think that in this specific circumstance i felt like it felt a little poetic because like i agree with you that i don't think that eddie would turn it over under normal circumstances but carnage um isn't normal circumstances and carnage attached to green goblin is certainly not normal circumstances and uh, I think if Eddie hadn't been through a fight where he had his his you know energy depleted to the point where he couldn't contribute anymore, I think he would have just helped Peter fight. Um, but I think given the exact set of circumstances, I was like, yeah, like it feels like we're setting this up just to get Peter in the black suit. But I buy it enough that I'm like, okay, like I'm I'm happy enough with that being the thing that I'm like, I'll I'll, I'll swallow that comic booky explanation. Fair enough. Uh, so on the whole, a, a big success for Dan Slott and every single artist involved in this. I think everybody did a great job. For me, this is one of the definitive issues of Spider-Man. Certainly one of the definitive issues of Dan Slott's run. And while it's not perfect, I think that it captures eloquently the spirit of the whole run and Spider-Man and, and every character that's involved. Uh, so... Hats off. I think you guys did a great job. I feel like especially those last two pages. I think they, they do a really good job of capturing the spirit of Spider-Man. And um, yeah, I, I, I got to say, really impressed. Good work, Dan Slott. Never thought I'd be saying that. <laughs> the, the best the best art in this issue was Goodbye by Marcos Martin. That is my last opinion. A lot of people. Yep. A lot of people say that. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think that last page where he it's, you know, it's a very Spider-Man panel, but. Cool. So let's move over to Man of Steel number one. Hell uh, yeah. Is the weekly series uh, that Bendis is doing as the lead in to his uh, taking over Action Comics and Superman. Uh, so the art this time. So every issue will have different art. Uh, with Bendis obviously being the writer. Uh, so the art this time was by Ivan Reese. Uh, so Phil, as the resident Superman lover and the resident Bendis hater, what did you think of this issue? Uh, I'm the resident uh, Superman lover, so let's get something ah. right straight there. But but continue, Phil. Well, Marco, Marco is Lois Lane, <laughs> is, is what he's going <laughs> to there. And, and I'm Clark Kent, right. Um... It was okay. Um, it was more than I expected, I guess. Um, I thought it was safe and kind of unremarkable, I guess. Um, I liked Ivan Reese's art quite a bit. And the big thing I want to compliment Mr. Bendis on is I liked his scripting of Superman. I thought his dialogue work on the book was the best dialogue I've read out of a Bendis book in years literal years like it sounded it sounded like he had the voice and there was like very little bendicisms if any yeah frankly there were a few there was a few moments that made me cringe a little bit but i i would agree with that by and large um i think he got kind of the dry sense of humor that um you would associate with maybe christopher reeves era superman which is fine with me honestly i i don't mind that at all um the villain, I just can't get. It. He's so bore. He's so generic. It's been done a few times. 
there's the Black Zero character, Amalek, Brainiac in some incarnations, Doomsday in some incarnations. Like, this motivation, it's not new. I don't think Bendis' interpretation... I mean, we'll see. It's only the first of six. What I think is interesting about about this characterization, to me, is his connection to the, the, the bigger... Um, at, they're not quite cosmic level beings but like uh you know guardian level beings like the 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 green lantern guardians yeah that's that's what's interesting to me Bendis is kind of doing the man of steel film interpretation of krypton uh traditionally krypton's interpreted as being very isolationist the man of steel film by Zack snyder and written by david s goyer interpreted krypton as uh being a colonizing planet and that's kind of what bendis is doing here uh, so there's the grievances of someone that's been perceivably, uh, conceivably colonized. Um, the other thing I'm not sure about, and I'm erring on the side of uh, being nervous about, because it is very Mike, Brian Michael Bendis, is it feels like they are on the verge of kind of adding a ton of romantic tension between Lois and Clark. And these two characters just got back together like two years ago after kind of already having a long slew of romantic tension for Clark in the New 52. And I'm, I was reading, I'm already exhausted by the concept of Clark feeling like extramarital thoughts about Lois and the idea of maybe Lois and John being pushed out or something for this new Melanie character. Um, so I'm not into that at all. Even like the idea of them exploring it for the sake of narrative, just because it, it's been done to death. That, and this kind of, I mean, this way is a little different, but I, I just don't really have any interest in seeing it. But the main thing here is better than I thought. Not bad. I left it thinking it was okay. What about you, Kale? Yeah, I'm pretty much on the same page. Um, I, for me, it was a first issue. Um, you know, we we did see um, we did see Bendis in the the free comic book day issue, and then the thousand, and then the um, the uh, 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 the twenty five cent whatever issue that came out not that long ago. The DC Nation, yeah, that's the one. <clears throat> um, this did expand on that, and and I I do like um, what I do like about this is that it. It does feel a bit more old, old, uh, more '90s Superman. In that, it it Metropolis feels a little bit more connected. And I, I haven't been into Superman, um, it, like newer Superman, um, so I, I can't speak to whether that's changed or 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 if there's been a shift in, in that aspect. But like, but like the um, addition of like this this fire chief melody more um it it makes it feel it makes it feel like he's trying to add a character similar to uh maggie sawyer you know just kind of someone else to bounce off of um and as for the you know like the um extramarital thoughts or whatever it didn't feel overt to me i for me it was just kind of like I can see it. Like, you know, Superman's not unattractive. Like No, he's extreme like he's a six foot three you you might say he's yeah, super attractive. He's Superman. Uh, and like I I don't even think it's 
out of the realm of possibility that like Superman slash Clark would flirt with someone else despite you know being married to Lois like I, I that's completely reasonable I feel like the thing that, that made it seem sketchy to me was when he's like oh you can go to the Daily Planet and ask Clark Kent or L- Lois you, you know what just ask Clark Kent I was like okay and it's not it's not so much that he's attractive or would flirt necessarily for me it's the I'm exhausted by the I like the idea of Superman having romantic conflict again so soon. Well, and the the thing about the Clark Lois thing that he tells uh, uh, Melody is that there's something going on with Lois's employment at the Daily Planet. And if you haven't read those issues, then uh, like I'm not even super clear on that. But it, she's not there anymore. Okay, yeah, I wasn't. I didn't know that. So yeah, um, that 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 sheds a little light there. Uh, but yeah, like, like I said, for me, the, the most intriguing part, uh, was this, this bad guy's connection to, you know, the guardians of Oa and, and the other sort of cosmic level. I, I found myself, um, tr- wanting to know the history of this character more than, um, his goals here. Because it's, you know, it's pretty obvious. Um, one one thing I will say, like, as um, they, they have this page uh, just after uh, the Guardian tells him that they're not going to go after Krypton. And he, he disappears, and then there's this whole page of, of uh, what's this guy's Ragal name? Ra- Ragalzal? Ragalzal. Zar. Yeah, okay. Um, it's just this full page of him, I don't know, grieving. I didn't know how to take that because like the, the, there was no like emotion. Yeah. yeah. Like I, he's upset about it and I don't care. So that page didn't do anything for me. And it's, it's like, what, like, what is his personal stake in this? Like, I'm sure we'll find out, but I feel like that page feels super out of place not knowing, like, I guess the Kryptonite, the Kryptonians came and probably colonized his planet and his family died or some shit, whatever. But, like, not knowing that, it's just, like, it just feels like there's no emotion to ground you in that moment. It's an empty page on two fronts. Like, it's an empty page, and then it literally has nothing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, and just before, you know, uh, the guy disappears, he, you know, he, he accuses... Uh, sort of that you know that that bigger group of of being bribed and like so so i assume the feeling is like a betrayal of like you know a higher council or a higher beings but it just like like i just met this guy and all i've seen of him is him throwing superman around like a rag doll like it doesn't there's nothing there i i guess i'll be the voice of dissension on that i actually connected with that character because of that page uh because i was I was mm, able okay. to see, wow, this means a lot to him. This is very personal. What's the motivation for somebody to exterminate an entire race of people? Is it rage? Is it pain? What is it? And this that one page told me, not in words what he, why, but how deeply he's been affected. That's all I need. And I'm sure we're going to find out more later, but that page really sold me on the depth of his emotion regarding this issue. All right. I, like, I guess, I guess, I don't necessarily need that because he's out there doing something. 
right? Like, he wouldn't be attacking Superman if he didn't feel powerfully enough to do that. Well, it's... Uh, so it's one you know. thing to attack Superman in the in the present, right? But I'm assuming that this panel, like yes. the, all that's in the past. So yes. he's about to. This is this is what gets him to Superman years and years later. So he's so like broken by something that happened that he's going to kill every single Kryptonian. That's that's big, you know. And I know it's not it's it's not new, but. Yeah, I, I I think uh, you're totally right, Sean. I mean, I got the impression that that was that was like his initial request to do it, right? And that got denied. So then he takes it into his own hands, and he's somehow responsible. Yeah, and that's and that's the thing. Like uh, to me, that that ground has been covered. So I don't know. Yeah, like yes, that emo that prob that page does show that emotion, I guess. But it just it didn't play for me. Uh. I, I think I liked the issue more than the rest of you. I really, really was pleased with what Bendis did. I I mean, I had as much trepidation as anybody else, but uh, I think he reined in some of his negative traits as a writer quite a bit. And I agree. I think that for me personally, right, because I'm not as well-versed in Superman as you are, Phil, I rarely have I felt like a writer understood Superman more than this. He really, really nailed the kinds of moments that I want to read about in a Superman book. Him just saving kids, you know, from a fire. Him having casual conversations with regular humans. Um, the when he when he gets Firefly, when he when he when he uh, captures Firefly and takes him or whatever. Like it, it, he does these things with such. Um, he, he's he's somewhat removed from it in the sense that, like, for example, the counterpoint is Batman, very aggressive, very angry, very, you know, whatever. Superman's kind of like, well, you guys can't threaten me. I'm not really in danger here. I'm just doing what I'm doing. And uh, he's taking it easy. And I love to see that. The dialoguing, like I said, was so, so crisp, like where he's like, Firefly says, don't drop me. And he's like, that's more of a Batman thing, and uh, well, no, Firefly goes or the other guy, his his accomplice or the guy he was going to shoot goes. Batman does it all the time, and then Superman goes. I know, but it's funny. And that's when he very does dry, it. very dry sense of humor. And um, you're right, the very human moments where he's saving people from fires and, and just having conversations, and like you think, like, oh, so you think it might be like a tampered electrical fire? Um, it had, like I said, the the core Superman elements I I was pleased with as well. I could see why you're reading this and thinking, oh, this is something I want to keep reading for sure. I think I think my favorite line was John telling Clark what Lois said to him about fixing his uh, his his, his jacket costume. thing. <laughs> yeah. Join the Legion of kids that are old enough to fix their own <laughs> he problems. Didn't, he didn't Boom! quite <laughs> get wrecked, he John. Didn't, he Fuck didn't quite you. have the tone right, apparently. So. Before we move on, I really want to hear Marco's overall take because I know that you are not really a Superman person. Uh, so I'm very curious. Is this your first Superman comic that you've read? Oh, I read All-Star. Uh, no, but well, I, in terms of we, like a weekly, uh, like a like a monthly book, uh, maybe uh, if it wasn't like a crossover with some other character that I follow, then yeah. Um, Swamp Thing. Yeah. I know. I, I thought it was, it was okay. It wasn't like... It had its issues, and it, but it, it didn't like it didn't hamper the book necessarily in any way, or it didn't hamper this issue in a substantial way. Uh, the art, Ivan Reese is he's awesome. I mean, 
we all know that my i think the only thing where i might have had an issue with the art was that moment where he's like in front of the daily planet and he's like speeding off because he hears somebody like yelling or something uh and then there are those three panels where his face changes a lot in between each one uh just because of the the distance but he doesn't keep that consistency going um i mean other than that everything it was pretty stellar and and i mean the the page that we were that we were talking about where it's just whatever ragu whatever his name is um is like oh, you know chef like, yeah sure whatever um like an, an exemplary piece of ivan reese art like it was re- it's really good the writing yes it's it's damn fine art yeah the writing i i'm not familiar with any other writing style outside of what i've seen with grant morrison so this to me was very very different and very <laughs> not jarring but it's something I, just, I had to sort of get accustomed to because i'm i'm just not familiar with it and so it had something in that same page where he's like oh there's somebody yelling oh wait nope there's somebody playing a song oh but wait, was, i should get back I really to yelling. That. see i it took me out of the book because it it was it was one of those things where i would where maybe in actual like in real life i would look up and be like oh somebody's doing something and then go back and that that was one of those moments where it took me out um and he they had another one i think later on i'm trying to remember where but uh, I, I, even the kind con- the casual conversation between melody like even that was something where it took me out it's like okay superman stopped to talk to this person what does that necessarily have to do with him and maybe again that sort of gap in uh knowledge but as somebody who is coming into this and who is coming into superman and coming in, at, into bendis there was a sort of discrepancy there with his character i think the song was deliberate i think the presumption 100%. i could i could be wrong i think it's presumably melody her name's melody presumably singing that song and it will lead to his attraction toward melody further to make this more conflicting you see later in the book he looks at a picture of lois and, and john and he smiles and then he frowns yeah, because he that. feels guilty the the, the, the 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 music thing is a young girl oh that's right um he yeah playing guitar no, he says um there's a young woman i'd say two miles away she's playing her best friend a song uh, she's been working on okay. it's a cover she says her voice cracks in all the right spots the implication definitely seems to be that she's like a young woman um but yeah, I I actually feel the opposite of those about those things, Marco. Um, I think that's one of the best moments in the book, um, because that's a Superman moment for me. Like, what makes Superman special is that Superman's a person, um, and I think like the moments where it's him saving a little girl and her puppy, or appreciating somebody's like you know singing voice. Those are um, those are very human moments, and those are the things I like the most about Superman. Um, and I think. I, I agree with all that's been said about, I don't really feel like I have too much to add about, I could not be less interested in this villain or this setup, but I think yes. the way that Bendis yes. is writing Superman's voice is really appealing to me. And maybe this arc is going to be boring and not for me, but I could see myself actually getting into ben, a, a regular Bendis Superman book if it has this tone, this humor, and it, this restraint. The restraint's a key um, word here. So... It is. It is. And like that's and like I don't mean that to be a dig because like there are times where like the bendicisms are are it's not a meme because there's no merit to it, right? Like the guy has some problems. I feel like he re- was really careful not to fall into those habits in this book. And uh I think if he can maintain that t- that 
that quality and that tone. Uh, if there's a narrative that I find more engaging, I think I could be really, really. Intense. I want to make one last final comment, and I just, I just liked the 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 scene where it implies Superman listens for certain key phrases, like "I have a gun" or "This is a holdup." Like, th- I like that in the grand scheme of things, the idea that he's listening for phrases to key him on on people that are doing bad things. I thought that was cool. Keep a smile up, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's uh, let's talk about Doomsday Clock number five. Uh, we've been waiting two months for this issue. It throws us right back into the thick of the drama uh, of you know the story uh, after the little detour that we had with issue number four. I think that there's a lot going on in this issue and a lot to unpack. Uh, Phil. Why don't you take us down a road? Talk to us about this. Okay, so this issue of Doomsday Clock goes big in the way the last issue went small. And I think the big takeaway here is it contrasts the big I think the big theme of this issue is it contrasts the 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 nihilism of the Watchmen with the hope and optimism of DC. You have um what's his name? The old man from the retirement home who escapes. Johnny oh, Thunder. Johnny Thunder, thank you. Who escapes to help retrieve Alan Scott's lantern in that cave while he's being attacked by Watchmen esque uh like ruffians kind of thing. God, that was the most stressful yeah. part. I uh I'm a a big fan of the Golden Age heroes and, and Johnny Thunder for me is one of the most creative and and special one of those heroes and seeing him in that situation stressed me out so much because he's a hundred years old and he's about to get the shit kicked out of him by some meth heads and i just i felt the same way with and i know this is an echo to this with um hollis mason yes you know in, in the original watchman it stresses me out so much I th- I think this uh this issue was the most impressive to me with those echoes. Like I feel like um it did it in ways that were like less obvious than and not to say that that's bad, but I feel like a lot of the callbacks have been like that where it's like, "Oh, this is kind of like that thing." Or they're using this uh noir series in the similar way to that to the book in the first book. Um but I feel like the mirroring of the themes in this was was one of the more effective uses of it. The big thing here is that there's a narrative in the DC universe that they're losing confidence in their metahumans outside of Superman, which is something they say in the very top of the issue. Gotham is ready to like tear Batman limb from limb, which is kind of like a big part of the climax of the issue. And there's a fear that's being generated from the media, which I think is where Johns is trying to make a commentary of today's society, talking about this Superman like metagene or however he described it where there's like a conspiracy that the government is creating superheroes and you see this contrasted with russia that's deliberately creating like a governmentally funded task force basically which is a big part of where the daily planet narrative comes in but But really but they're like normal they're not created like the supermen that's right where well, and that was the whole thing, right? Is they're trying to push this narrative that it's like the Superman theory that like a lot of these American superheroes were created by the government and these are authentic heroes who got their powers in accidents, the good old fashioned yes. way. And you interview someone like uh, uh, Firestorm who's talking to a professor on his head and it makes him sound crazy. Um, but the big thing here is the 
and this is like the big takeaway of the book for me, this issue, is the dialogue between Ozymandias and Batman. Yes. Yes. So powerful. This is the whole issue. Um, Ozzy talks about the hero syndrome where he's locking up people in rotating prisons where at least Ozzy has solutions and maybe they fail sometimes but at least he's working towards a goal where uh, they there's a there's an there's a idiom where the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results which is everything Batman is about is basically doing the same thing over and over again it's an endless cycle hell that's what the end of Batman Batman by Grant Morrison is all about is that no matter what this whole thing is going to continue in perpetuum forever and that's what this whole thing is about it's it's Batman's pure comic book optimism of you fight crime you hope to uh fix things where ozzy is dwelling on the the real world idea of like if there's someone as bad as the joker you kill him and that whole dialogue is the whole issue for me yeah that was a massive uh sort of it was weird because it was almost sobering to see someone who doesn't exist in that universe sort of like say to batman look man the fact that this guy's still alive is crazy. Like it doesn't make any sense. And you 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 cling to a simplistic morality based on pulp heroes. Right. I fucking this dialogue, man, was so impressive. I think that's one of the best lines. And it's just like we all know Jeff Johns is a talent, but like he has been really impressing me across these last five issues. And I think this is some of the best work. Like, that scene is so good. This issue is basically a convergence, and that's not a pun for an inferior book that came out three years ago, because this issue at the end also has Joker collide with uh, the two Charlatan mime characters. Everything's starting to come together, and I'm really curious. Obviously, the big thing we're still waiting on is the appearance of Dr. Manhattan, but that's still being alluded to. Dr. I'm sorry, uh, Saturn Girl and Rorschach their whole thing, which I think is like the starkest contrast of all, is Rorschach, who's this nitty gritty character, and Saturn Girl, who's by definition like the most Silver Age character they could have possibly picked. And then, and then lumping them in with Johnny Thunder yeah. and, and uh, I assume Alan Scott. So that was the thing I wanted to touch on, um, and it's the thing I'm most interested in talking about in this discussion. Is I think uh, I made the comment before of how I think this issue did the best job of. Um, taking what Watchmen was, like, about in a core way and representing that in a modern way, which is commentary about superheroes. Um, And I think, like, even in small ways, like, in that scene with Saturn Girl and Johnny Thunder and the new Rorschach, like, Johnny Thunder is, like, you know, he's trying to reason with them, he's trying to plead for help, and, you know, Rorschach shows up and beats these guys to death with a pipe. And he's just like, oh, my God. He And she's like, don't worry about it. Like, it's, you know... They were going to die anyway. And that's such a stark contrast of what superheroes were and what superheroes often now are. Um, and I think, again, that that scene between uh, Voight and, and Bruce is is like a scathing indictment of superheroes, you know, and and um, and kind of the, the mythology and the fantasy that we build up around them. Right. He says, like, you're all caught in a vicious cycle of entertaining yourselves. You know, like you're ignoring real world problems. And we've talked about that on the show, right? Like if Batman used his resources that he uses to build fucking private jets and tanks to, I don't know, cure cancer, he could probably realistically save a lot more lives and do a lot more good. But he's so wrapped up in 
this cycle and this mythology that he's built up around himself that like he that his mission is the most important thing in a to a point where it's actually eclipsed his real desire to help people yeah uh i think the point was driven home really solidly in this issue that the watchman characters are not they're not heroes they're not superheroes they were never meant to be and the difference between them and the dc heroes I never put it together in this way ever before uh, that, that, that there is this huge contrast. Um, I think that I think that John's is is doing such a phenomenal job of not making this what everyone thought it was going to be. All the interactions that we've had so far between a Watchmen character and a DC character has been relevatory and very, very uh, vital, I think, as opposed to just being a throwaway. You could have easily had the Joker meet the comedian, right, like two issues ago, and have them do some some stupid, I don't know, like have them have a dumb, big, dumb conversation, right? Uh, there's a lot of... Yeah, or a you fist could have fight. easily had... <laughs> Whatever. There's a lot of ways it could go. Uh, but I think that Jeff Johns is doing a great job at using these character interactions to say things that we need to hear about not just superheroes, but about the world that we live in. You think about it, and, and from the DC side, at least all the major players are now moving into place. You have Superman, Batman, the Joker, and Lex Luthor. They're all kind of moving. Where's Wonder Woman? That's true. Do you think they'll use Wonder Woman? Yeah, right? I think so, yeah. So we don't know how she figures into this, though I, I do want to comment that I like, I think it's really interesting what's, there's, so there's this global paranoia about superhumans, and Black Adam is talking about opening up a refuge for these characters, kind of like Genosha in the X-Men comics. Yes. Well, and and I, I feel like he did something similar in 52. Yes. But that was kind of... Because, like, he... He was sort of the the king of contact, you know, at that point. But I, like, I think it got really sort of muddled with the continuity. But I feel like there was something similar happening back then. Yeah, that that evolved into World War Three. I, I remember the story you're talking about. Yeah, I also did want to just call out that moment because that was such a ridiculous scene. Like the the journalist is about to get executed, and then he just like literally electrocutes the head off his body and then he's just like serves you right like it's just it was so graphic i loved it though <laughs> i think this for me was the best issue of the series so far i agree gary frank has been doing such a good job with the visual metaphors the last panel before the 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 word the the closing little words they have um in this case eugene o'neill is a moth Flying into a flame, which was a recurring. I was wondering about that visual in issue four. Uh, there's just so much to this book. I think you could realistically have like an hour conversation just about this. Uh, it, it really is incredible the tension that's established here. Um, it's ramping up, and the cool thing about it is we have no idea what's going to happen. For me, this is not a regular event in the sense that. You kind of know that in the end, at the end of the day, everybody's going to be safe. It's going to resolve itself neatly, and we'll move on. Uh, this ain't that. Who knows what happens, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that adds a lot to this book. And uh, it's going to be very difficult to wait another two months for the next issue. Yeah, man. I, I think just like the last note I'd like to make is just like, 
I, I agree with you that I think this is the best issue. I also thought the last issue was the best issue. To me, I I, I personally feel like after this uh, issue five, unless unless this this series takes a fucking nosedive off a cliff, I, I think Johns is on track to make like an all time great story here. Like it's not just an event. Like I really do think this is like something special and meaningful, and I think it's saying something special and meaningful. Um, and, and I really, truly believe that as long as they maintain this level of quality and this level of care that's being put into it, that like, I can't see how this doesn't go down as an all time great comic. Um, it's, it's certainly making you want to know what's going to happen with Dr. Manhattan. Oh man. Oh man. Yeah. Like the mystery that's being built up around that is so compelling. And then when you add what Lex Luthor was saying, how the person who fabricated this is a former Justice League yes. member, who the hell is that? Like, oh my God, I can't, I haven't had this feeling about comic books in a very, very long time. We're, we're, we're obviously going to continue to talk about Doomsday Clock any time that an issue drops. So if you enjoy these conversations, uh, be sure to come back when the next issue comes because we three will months. be talking about it. Uh, three months this time? I, I, I'm, I'm just joking because oh. of the delays. Uh, I hope it's not three months. But uh, in any event, we would love to hear your thoughts about these books. Did you read them? Uh, what did you think about Amazing Spider-Man, Man of Steel, and Doomsday Clock? Reach out to us. Uh, we are on Apple Podcasts and all other plot, uh, podcast hosting platforms. Uh, we are at the Comics Pals, wherever your social media is sold. You can write to us about this or any other conversation that we've had on any episode of the Comics Pals by writing in at thecomicspals at gmail.com. You can hit us with a random question, a buy or sell, or anything you feel like talking to us about. And last but not least, we're on YouTube, where if you're watching this there, you can hit us with a like, uh, drop a comment, share this with your friends, and last but certainly not least, subscribe to our channel. Those subscribers help us out a lot. Hit the notification bell to make sure that you are kept up to date with all the stuff that we are doing here. And with that, we're going to do some plugs. Pete. Cool. Thank you guys so much for joining us here on another episode of The Comic Spells. Uh, if you want to check out some more content from me, you can catch me on all of our other programs. Uh, we've got The Video Game Pals, which posts the day after The Comics Pals um, on podcast platforms. It's up on Friday alongside the full video version of The Comics Pals. Uh, every Friday over on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash thecomicspals. Uh, so go check that stuff out. I'm on our uh, Monday through Thursday Let's Play show, Pals Play with Thompson. Um, I don't know what we're playing this week, so give me some ideas. And uh, yeah, um, other than that, you can catch me at loud underscore Pete on Twitter and Instagram. Talk to me about uh, Amazing Spider-Man 800. I would love to talk some more about it. Or Doomsday Clock. Very into them. Cool. Kale? You learn Japanese, you play that new Pokemon beta that just came out. Ooh, baby. Oh, baby, we're talking about that shit tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Mm. Uh, you can find me and my comic books with Letty Wilson on selfie.com slash panels publishing. We're also on Comixology under panels publishing. Uh, we're going to be uh, doing a Mouse for this month's book club. Uh, that releases sometime in June, but we're recording it ideally tomorrow. But... Uh, uh, yeah, uh, read uh, both books or, or the complete series, but um, uh, shit's gonna get heavy. 
Uh, you can follow me at Toto in Toad on uh, Twitter and Instagram. That's T-O-T-O-I-N-T-O-W. Phil? Make sure to go out and buy our new toys that are being produced. Uh, like I said, we sold our rights and likenesses, so go look for those. Um, Pete comes with a, a big speaker box in his in his chest. Um, and then go check out Sean's favorite superhero movie, uh, Ghost Rider 2, starring Nicolas Cage. As for me, you can follow me on social media at Cyborg Bebop Marco. You can find me at Mr. Marco Animoto on Instagram and Twitter. Big shout out to I Am a Hero because that came out uh, with a trailer for a live action movie adaptation from the horror manga series. Sweet. And as for me, I'm at Sean Soapbox on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you can hit me up to talk about whatever. And with that, we're the Comics Pal signing off. Take care, guys. See you next week. Bye. When men make gods, there is no god. Eugene O'Neill. Doomsday Clock. 2018. Jeff Johns. <laughs>